good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to first also extend our welcome to all of you for visiting us here in Lincoln who come from around the world for this conference. This is my third one of the Global Water for Food conferences and I think each year we've seen an escalation of the quality of the meeting at this morning's session was any indication of what we have to come the next few days. I won't get the chance to do this at the microphone um, uh, in any of the rest of the meeting, and I want to make sure it gets done. This setting that we have here and the logistics associated with the planning of this meeting don't totally fall in the lap of this individual, but pretty much do. And I want her to stand up. Monica Norby, would you please stand? who's done a tremendous job organizing this meeting. Now this session this afternoon, we thought that given the uh, title of the conference, Too Hot, Too Wet, Too Dry, that given the last couple of years that we've experienced here in the U.S., and particularly right here in Nebraska, that we shouldn't lose the opportunity to do a little bit of a case study to look at what the impact of the drought that we've been experiencing in 2012 and continue to experience now has taught us. And in particular, what surviving that drought has meant relative to the innovations that we've had available to us today that previous generations really didn't have. So if you think back to the droughts of the 30s, the dirty 30s as we call them, the drought of the 50s, uh, more recent droughts in the late 80s and 90s. What has that looked like compared to what we experienced in the hottest and the driest year on record here in this part of the world? So we've, we've organized a panel for you. I'm going to first frame the topic, and then we have six speakers who are going to come to you to talk about different areas of that innovation. Uh, the first three, will deal primarily on the plant side of the equation, plant productivity, if you will. The second three will deal with agronomic practice, irrigation technology, and precision agriculture. I think we're in for a treat this afternoon as we think through those. I think all of you know, and you've heard from several of the speakers this morning, that our challenges that lie ahead are pretty great. We've heard tremendous uh, number of times the debate about population, an increase in population and feeding that growing population. You heard that from several speakers this morning, the anticipated 9.3 billion people to be on the planet by 2050. I like this slide. I use it everywhere I go because I think it summarizes things extremely well uh, from Jeff Simmons, the CEO of Elanco. And there, the trail across the top is an easy thing to put all of this in perspective for me. By 2050, an additional two-plus billion people on the planet as compared to today. E estimates that we will need to at least upwards double food production from what we currently do today to meet that need around the world. 70% of that increase is likely to need to come from greater efficiency and technology enhancement as compared to inputs, if you will. And that last number often gets left off and as an animal scientist, I can't miss the opportunity to say it, that our estimates are that an additional 3 billion people on the planet by 2050 will desire more animal protein in their diets. And when you collectively add all that together, 
and you consider the constraints that we've heard so much about this morning in terms of climate and change and increased variability in climate, and you look at the competition for resources to meet those needs that lie ahead, it's absolutely clear we've got some evolution to do. I'm a geneticist, I have to do this. I have to throw DNA on the slide at least one point, as, you know, as if you haven't heard DNA already this morning. We've, we need to evolve, and we need to do it rapidly and smartly in order to meet those challenges that are ahead. Now, for our guests from outside Nebraska, we're going to use the state as an example here today to talk to you about drought. And I want to frame that first by putting in perspective the ag economy here in this state. We're a leading agricultural state in the country. You see some of the statistics there. I'll point out some key ones for you. Uh, we have the largest aquifer that underlies much of this state. Uh, we, have, we are the largest irrigated state in the United States currently. We passed California a number of years ago in that regard. We are ranked first in the U.S. in commercial red meat production when you total all red meat together uh, here in the state, second in ethanol production capacity, and in the top three or four in various crop commodities in terms of value produced in the U.S. So collectively, I just share that with you to say that you're sitting in the middle of agriculture uh, in this rich region that we have uh, here in this part of the Great Plains. Another thing that you might not recognize that should, should frame our speaker's comments today is that we cross five agroecological zones as you go from the Missouri River just to the east of us here to the Wyoming border in far western Nebraska. And if you put over top of that rainfall and altitude, as you see across the bottom of the slide, we cross more agroecological zones in that distance of about 400 plus miles than you do going from the Missouri River to the Atlantic Ocean on the east coast of the US. So we often say this is a living laboratory for the world. And indeed, much of our discussion around the Water for Food Institute and forming it here has been framed in that manner. There's an exhibit here you're going to be hearing from Mike Forsberg and Michael Farrell about this project here at this conference, the Platte, Platte River Time Lapse Project. This is the front end of that when they put cameras up the watershed of the Platte to the, both the headwaters of the North and the South Platte uh, in 2011. Little did they know that they, were they would experience two of the most extreme years in the history of the Platte watershed. If you remember 2011, it was a flood year in this part of the world, and we certainly experienced that in the Missouri watershed, the Platte watershed, and then you remember last year that was in fact the hottest and the driest in, on record uh, since our records uh, began being made. And these pictures kind of reflect that as you move at least through uh, the beginning of the project through last summer. You've seen these pictures uh, over and over and over again. Uh, we're very, very pleased and proud of the fact that the National Drought Mitigation Center is here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, they produce these maps and monitor drought as it comes on and try to uh, uh, mitigate drought uh, in its onset. This was the drought monitor slide as little as six weeks ago. 
in the current drought that we're experiencing. And if you look in the center of the country where we're at in Nebraska, you'll see that we were indeed the heart of the drought at that point in time. We'll show a slide a little bit later in the presentation that shows that that has come off and eased somewhat from the weather we've had in this late spring, but we're still uh, very much experiencing uh, the effects of that drought. You're gonna hear from Chuck Hibbard tomorrow morning on the program. Chuck is the Dean and Director of UNL Extension, and he's going to talk to you about translational importance of information in a drought and how to reach to the field and how to deal with the effects of drought and mitigating that drought through the efforts that the Extension Service has had here in this state and our contemporaries around the country um, in many respects. So let's take a look back now at some of the previous droughts and what those looked like. We've seen this as recently as uh, in the very heat of the drought last summer from the Wall Street Journal, despite drought, farm income should rise. And in fact, I'm going to show you some data that say that this was in fact one of the best years in history in terms of farm income uh, nationally and in particularly in this part of the country. But what you may not recognize is that drought is a regular phenomenon here. These are the periods of greater than five-year droughts going back to when records started in the, the mid-1800s at Ash Hollow, Nebraska. So the key to these slides, you'll see the Nebraska map. The star is where Ash Hollow is located in the state. It's in the west central part of Nebraska, near Llewellyn, Nebraska. And you'll see that we experience about every 20 to 25 years an extended drought cycle where we have greater than five years of drought. The two most famous that we'll talk about today at some length are the dirty 30s, that period of 1931 to 1940, and the, the early 50s, 1952 to 1957. And we, we uh, interviewed some folks who experienced those droughts and asked them what they were like in that period of time. There, some of you will have seen recent documentary about the Dust Bowl that's aired several times on PBS uh, that interviews and talks about families that experience that, particularly in the Southern Plains. Keith Hurman, longtime agriculturalist here in Nebraska, about an hour and a half west of Lincoln in the south central part of the state, talked about the Dust Bowl image. The dust was so bad, the fence lines would just drift like snow with dust. Weeds would get caught in the fence row, and dust would just drift there. I think we've all seen pictures that would remind us of that kind of story. Leroy Hankel from Living History Farms. I remember coming home in the combine. Our corn was up over our head, and it looked good. And just in three or four days, we already knew that it was gone. Think flash drought like we talked about um, last summer. Keith again. It got so hot the corn got tall enough we cut it to try to save it for livestock feed. His family were, had a prized herd of shorthorn cattle that his father had started and they were threatened with losing that cow herd and instead of losing it the cattle got drawn down if you would, you would uh, be with me during that drought period. I've heard Keith talk about that many times. And then there were the grasshoppers. And the, you'd look in the sky, according to Keith, and you'd see the sky glistening with, with hordes of grasshoppers that they tried to stay ahead of in that period of the 1930s. And then lastly, this is hard for us to envision, but it was true for that generation. I heard it from my, my in-laws as well. 
where Russian thistles became feed, or as we would call them, tumbleweeds, became feed where they would be harvested before they would thorn in order to use them for animal nutrition, for use as animal feed. So that visually gives you a little bit of the picture, if you will, of what that dirty 30s was like. Here's what it was like in terms of production. And if you look at those years during the drought, here's the average bushels per acre uh, in Hamilton County, which as you see by the star there is in south central Nebraska, the county that Keith is actually from, where he grew up. And you see that the, the bushels in maize or in corn here, uh, quite low during that period of time. Of course, realize these were dry land, what we would refer to as dry land or rain-fed yields, no irrigation. And look at 1940. 2.8 bushels per acre being the, compared to an average in that time period that would be between 25 and 30 bushels per acre, not under drought. Then there were the 50s. Beulah Gott talked about how there was a mass exodus in the 30s, but another mass exodus in the 50s, for it, because if you couldn't sink a well to get to irrigation water, uh, the young people left the land. So that was her point uh, here. Irrigation technology began to be available and an opportunity to use water for irrigation happened during, first during the 50s and Bob Dougherty, whose foundation of course is behind the Water for Food Institute, uh, talked here about the impact that irrigation technology could have in moving forward to, um, to make use of our land. Keith talked about how technology changed in crop improvement during that time. And we went from open pollination to uh, hybrid corn production and the, the advent and, and, and uh, impact that hybridization in the corn industry had. He also talked there, of course, about uh, having to use pesticides that were, were uh, absolutely required to be able to fight uh, the battle, so to speak, at that time. Now here's a historical look at what corn yields looked like uh, in the U.S., I'll show you a similar slide here next of soybeans. And if you look through that horizon, it's pretty obvious where technology began to be effectively used in the 1950s, the 1960s, 1970s, and 80s, and more recently, the very high yields we've seen from, a, from application in a systems way of many technologies to get yields up into that 150 to 200 bushel per acre. And concordantly, Jeff Rakes and I were joking at dinner last night, you uh, can also see where uh, we perhaps went from a supply-driven incentive program to a demand-driven incentive program when prices began to really increase in these last couple of decades. So a tremendous change that we've seen across time. Soybeans, a similar picture where uh, the technology adoption or where you can begin to see that impact of technology uh, increasing soybean yields in a similar kind of way. Now I'm going to show you the impact of last year very quickly in a few slides here, and I don't want to get bogged down in the detail of the state or the counties or the colors here necessarily. I want you to look at the overall yields. These first yields are for corn, and they're for uh, dry land or rain-fed, corn production, and then I'll show you the irrigated yields here in a moment. 2011, remembering that was a flood year, we had an average in the state of Nebraska at 132 bushels per acre on what we would refer to as dry land production. 
Fast forward to last year in the flash drought, just under 59 bushels per acre, roughly a 57% reduction in overall dryland yield across the state with some variability as you'd expect from location to location within the state. Amazing to me that we produced 59 bushel per acre under the conditions that we had, uh, if you remember back to what it was like uh, last summer. Irrigated corn yields, state average in 2011 of 180 bushels per acre, and amazingly, last year, it actually went up. And our irrigated yields, even under the heat stress that we experienced, uh, increased by five to six percent at an aggregate level across the state. So a powerful uh, impact of irrigation, certainly that we experienced here in this part of the Corn Belt, as compared to our neighbors that didn't have the impact of irrigation in Iowa and Illinois um, and Indiana. Soybean yields, dry land, 47.4 bushels per acre in 2011. Fast forward to last year in the drought, 24.9 bushels per acre, roughly a 50% reduction in yield on dry land, similar to what we saw on corn. And if we look at irrigated yields, they essentially were even. 60.6 bushels per acre in 2011, 60.7 bushels per acre in 2012. So I think there's a phenomenal story in here about the impact of these technologies on two extreme years like that and what we've seen uh, uh, during that period. I just got these data from the Conservation and Survey Division in our School of Natural Resources last week, and it deals with what we uh, are seeing in first scope of groundwater level changes. Obviously, a lot of water was used last summer uh, in order to sustain those kinds of yields. This shows five locations in the state where that monitoring has, has uh, occurred. Uh, in the 2.87 there is at Shickley in south central Nebraska near the Kansas line. The five, minus five is at Aurora in Hamilton County, the area I referred to earlier. Uh, minus 5.5 is at Elgin in northeast Nebraska. The Republican River Valley, minus 1.85 uh, uh, in southwest Nebraska, and minus 3.3 in Alliance in the Panhandle. What is striking about this is that the 5.5 is more than twofold the previous record. And 5 and 2.87 are both records. So you know, it's, there is a cost associated with sustaining that yield, and we certainly aren't uh, out from under that yet at this point in time. I mentioned earlier, this is the later drought map, so this was last week, uh, the most recent drought uh, monitor map, and you can see that it's eased quite a bit from what I showed you in mid-March in the earlier slides. So we now don't have very much of our area in the brown, the darkest severe exceptional drought category, and the drought appears to be moving south and west. Uh, from where, where it had been um, certainly uh, last summer. Few concluding comments. Lots of impacts still being monitored in the, the impact of this drought, not only here, but throughout uh, the, the Great Plains. And a list of headlines here gives you a, a, a feeling of what that, that list of impacts is like. 
The National Drought Mitigation Center, just in this calendar year, has added 192 impacts and 936 reports to their drought impact reporter. And just a few key things to point out that says we're far from done with this drought. First, cattle numbers are at the lowest that they've been since 1952 in the U.S. at 89.3 million. Uh, and if you remember earlier, my reference to the importance of the livestock industry in this part of the world. Hay stocks, the lowest since record keeping began in 1957. Crop insurance payments uh, exceeded $17 billion as of the end of April, uh, just last week. Uh, many cities and water irrigation districts have announced restrictions. Uh, we'll, hopefully we'll see continued improvement of that through the summer. And we certainly have still seen some damage to winter uh, wheat, uh, both from drought and from late freeze. So, so some, some variability we talked about earlier is vivid here in these pictures. The last thing I want to point out to you, I mentioned the Wall Street reference to uh, expected good time in terms of net uh, farm income, even in a drought year. This was what 2011 looked like in Nebraska. It was a record year for net farm income. And not just a record, but a record by a long shot, if you look at it compared to the previous record in 2008. 7.5 billion uh, in net farm income for the state. We don't have the final numbers for 2012 yet, but the expectation is that number will still be on the trend line that you see in this graph. It will still probably be above the trend line for overall net farm income in the state. Looking out to 2013, uh, we, we have been told to expect nationally an increase of 14% in net farm income. It's expected to be the highest level since 1973. Uh, Joe Glauber, the chief economist at the USDA just recently in the Rag Outlook Forum in February said that despite the historic drought, that we expect 2013 to be a good year when you combine uh, production with expected exports. So I, I hope that gives you uh, some kind of framing of the kind of extremes that we've had. Does that make sense? So we've, we've gone through two exceptional years. We are still experiencing the end of this drought, but compared to what we would have expected under previous conditions, this is a dramatic story. Now what we have asked our speakers to do today is we've asked them to come to you and give you 15 to 20 minutes of perspective from the sector they come from in terms of technology development and application and where they think that's impacted, the story that I just shared uh, with you. And I'm going to ask first uh, Jim Specht. Jim is the Haskins Professor in Plant Genetics here at UNL in the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture. Uh, he's a soybean physiologist and geneticist. Uh, he has a long and accomplished record that you can read in your, your program, uh, working in the soybean genome and working in, in uh, plant hardiness, particularly in soybeans. And we've asked Jim to come and talk from the perspective of a plant breeder and a, a crop improvement person. Jim. Thank you. Give me a warning of 15 minutes or so. Five minutes to finish up. All right, if we can go ahead and get the slides, and I do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all here and, and Ronnie's invitation to do so. So uh, Monica had sent out some of the uh, 
slide format. And we had the real dry one over here or the parched one here, so I decided to choose the blue one, Monica, because I thought it was, might be wet, but it's cool. <laughs> so I'm gonna take a look at a couple things I've worked on for the past uh, 34 or five years or whatever. So I guess I control this up here, right? I think we need to start here, first of all, with the problem. And uh, you can see photosynthesis here and transpiration are two things that we need to deal with ever since uh, plant species came out of the ocean and had to deal with getting CO2 while without losing much water. I think photosynthesis up here is the general equation that you've seen from your high school biology or whatever. And as Sally pointed out this morning, plants have the unique ability at their photosystem too to split water and take the electrons and protons and park them on the most oxidized form of carbon to partially reduce it to a carbohydrate. Of course, you know the fully reduced form of carbon is methane. This is fuel. This is what we're getting in the atmosphere right now. So if we ever figure out how plants do that, we'll have an unlimited source of hydrogen energy, that's for sure. But that's not my point today. It's to talk about this conundrum right here where plants have to be able to take up CO2 and while doing so, avoid the loss of water. And I just used my own species, uh, soybean down here, to the time it takes one of these CO2 molecules to flux into the leaf, 400 water molecules run out. That's 400, that's a big change there. And we express photosynthesis over transpiration in terms of water use efficiency. So photosynthesis is basically a measure between what the atmospheric concentration is and the internal CO2 concentration divided by the uh, gradient here that's driving water out of the leaf. I put humidity here, but it's really the vapor pressure deficit. And as uh, Rosina talked about this morning, it's gonna get more humid in our atmosphere, but what's important is not the humidity, which is temperature dependent, independent, but it's a vapor pressure deficit. So we have to deal with these two issues. And of course, C4, corn is a lot better at it than C3. Most people don't like to think of C4, corn being drought tolerant, but it's more drought tolerant than soybeans in that context, because you're getting more photosynthesis with a C4 than you are with a C3. Now we all know from what we heard this morning, CO2 is rising and rising a lot faster it did than when I was a high school freshman back in 1959 to now over 300, closing on 400. You can see the difference between the Northern Hemisphere summers and winters here. Obviously this translates into a lot of increase and um, it was talked about in terms of gigatons or billion tons, whatever this morning, but for a C3 species, actually it turns out this is of some benefit because we increase the upper part of that water use equation that I just described, water use efficiency. And I've computed that it's about 3.5 to five kilograms per hectare per year, about 0.05 to 0.07. Pretty small compared to our total technology, genetic agronomic and the synergism between those two on a per year basis in soybean. One of the aspects though, hasn't been addressed yet, is that as we get higher CO2, plants will adopt by spreading out their stomates. Because you have to remember, primary purpose of a stomate is to grab CO2 without losing too much water. So I found a remarkable study where they looked at a botanical uh, specimen in Florida pre-1900 versus now, and what they saw was changes like this. 
I've also been in the bowels of the Smithsonian one time and looked at um, fossils there as well. So this is going to be a current another way to look at high CO2 levels in the past in addition to what Rosina talked about this morning. Coming back to this, uh, again, we want to talk about transpiration here because we'd like to get, uh, we'd like to increase this. This is the so-called crop per drop sort of thing that you, you hear the moniker crop per drop, but in mathematical terms, this is what we're talking about. The only control that plant has here is on the internal CO2, which of course C4s do very efficiently. And of course, the external part they use by opening and closing their stomates. The problem when they do that is that they not only reduce water use, but they also reduce CO2 uptake. So it's gonna be real difficult to get an in increase that way. So my emphasis has been trying to improve this part of the equation to get, actually get more crop per drop. Now, we, uh, in the field agronomy, we talk about crop evapotranspiration. That's known as ET for short. The E part comes from the loss of water to the uh, atmosphere when we have wet soil and wet leaf surfaces. By that, I mean leaf surfaces that just got to rain on them. That water can evaporate away. And then, of course, you have transpiration, I just before you, the exit of, of water molecules from, from the leaf during uh, when the stomates are open. Here, this is a, a little graph I use in the soy water program. And I see this morning when I got here, I forgot to include the website for that. But you can go to UNL Crop Watch or just Google it, soy water on the internet. And this, graphs like this will appear that will that help about 800 farmers right now to schedule soybean irrigations a heck of a lot better than they did in the past. But this is the typical curve. We have ET, E evaporation, transpiration on this side. Notice the units here in inches uh, per day. Sorry about that. This is an international audience. But, and then we have uh, days of the year down here. And typically the pattern for a soybean season is that it rises early, leaf area scarce to begin with, peaks around between flowering and pod development comes down. So this would be like a 30 year average, the blue. You can see in any individual years, it can be all over the place, depending on whether the wind, hot, dry wind is blown in from Arizona, or you just had a rainfall, it's been misty for a few days. But the key thing right here is it does peak at 0.3. A lot of your center pivot systems have been designed to deliver a quarter inch an acre. Last year, we were getting some in this range up here because of the heat and the drought. Well, you take that prior curve, and you do a cumulative, that is we take each day and accumulate it from the prior day. You get this S-shaped curve here. Again, this is something that'll show up on soil water when you look at it. And what we're saying here is that during our uh, Nebraska climate here, uh, we eventually reach a peak for soybeans that are planted late April and emerged then, in which there's gonna be about 19.25 inches of water use to get a 75 bushel per acre yield, which is, so if we take Mother Nature's rain right here and just linearize it during this, linearize it during this period, you can see we're gonna be about six inches short. Uh, we also end up having more rainfall early. Of course, the plants can't use it as well. But the key thing there, this is the, the uh, deficit that we have between the phenological part of water use and the Mother Nature's delivery. Just to give you a general idea, I'm sorry I don't have this in metrics, it had, would have had a lot of other uh, parenthetic extensions there, but 
When we talk about an acre inch of water, if it's an inch of rain or an inch of irrigation, that's how many gallons are in those. That's 27 point, or 27,154,000 gallons of water spread over one acre. And there's 16 cups to the gallon. I'll come back to that in a moment. So if we have a soybean crop out there that's doing 125,000, it has 125,000 plants per acre that produce this yield level at the end of a 140-day growing season, that's going to require about 20 acre inches. So 20 times this is a half a million gallons of water. One half of a million gallons of water. Okay? Now, obviously that's for 125,000 plants, but that's about 4.34 gallons per plant. In fact, when they hit that peak period of 0.3 in the long-term average, a plant is drinking one of these cups of water per day. Okay. So that's just to give you some information there. Humans, of course, are supposed to drink a gallon a day. So that half a million gallons of water would translate into a 140-day supply for same period up here for 3,800 humans. And of course, Los Angeles has a population density of about 11 humans per acre, so one person per 4,000 square feet. Surprisingly, it's the densest city in the USA. That amount of water would give them a 135-year supply. So plants use a lot of water, mainly because they have to have their stomates open to get CO2 in. And when I first put these figures up, I said the same thing. I said, hmm, that's a lot of water. And think about that the next time you water your house plant with a cup of water every morning. Farmers have 125,000 of these to give a cup of water to, and that's for every acre. Here's the culprit here, ET. I put it in big red letters here. What I'd like to do is eliminate most of the E and make the rest of the water become T. In other words, all the water that's available in our environment, I want it to go through the leaves because the more I can go through the leaves, the more yield I'm going to get because there is a definite linear relationship between seed yield and the amount of water transpired. And, and you can see that here a little bit. One of the things you can do, one of the lowest hanging fruits you can do is to grab more water early in the season, grab more light. You can see in this planting day comparison, you're wasting a lot of the solar energy that's hitting the ground instead of a green leaf. I want your soybean canopy green to the eye by the 4th of July if you want to get high yields and use water efficiently. And not only that, you'll evaporate water you've already sought. Sought to preserve here with, say, no-till, and also uh, not use the rain that comes early in Nebraska like I showed in the S-shaped curve. Of course, if you grab a longer season, you're going to use more water simply because plants transpire. The longer the season, the more water they're going to use. But you can, do, you can remember that when you plant early, the water's use efficiency during the cooler part of the period is much greater. This is four locations calculated by my colleague Larry Purcell in Arkansas. You can see, say, for Urbana, Illinois right here, if you're going to do any transpiration or ET, you'd like to do it when the efficiency is high. So if you plant your crop early, you get that sort of benefit as well. And as we mentioned, as Cynthia indicated, we need to be more efficient in all of our agricultural operations. Okay, one of the things that has influenced my research, we have a few more minutes left here, it's John Passiora, who's an Australian scientist, who shortly after I came on board here in 75, published this in the, in the Australian Journal. Basically, what he said was the total biomass is a function of your water use efficiency, that is, how much water do you have to pay to get a carbon fixed? 
times the amount of water that you're going to run through the plant. So that's really just a re standard regression equation from you guys that remember that from college days, y equals the regression change in yield versus change in water, you know, times the, inter or times the, uh, the x variable. All I did after this, well, he, what he did is he added a harvest index factor so you could put it in there. So basically, the amount of yield you get is going to depend on this exchange coefficient, how much water you flush through the plant through transpiration, and how much you can capture in seed yield. The semi-dwarf varieties in wheat, for example, were reflective of that. You can improve it. So I took John's equation and just plotted it with crop biomass or on this axis, relative crop transpiration down here, and then for a harvest index. You can see Mother Nature when she created C4 species, because they can draw the CO2 in the leaf down to near zero. Very productive, very steep water use efficiency line here. C3s like soybeans fall down here. If you can improve the harvest index relative to seed yield, obviously you get a benefit, you can boost those up a little bit as well. So breeders have worked on improving this, but also trying to shift this line, make it a little steeper. When I came here to Nebraska in 1974, that whole county was mainly sorghum. I can't even find a sorghum field this day because of the improvement in corn yield steepened this response. And we breeders, we breed for wide open stopates. You can see this from a plant physiology uh, online thing and sheep for red wheat. Here's the green yield over here. Here's stomatal conductance, which is a measure of the ability of, of water and CO2 to enter the leaf or leave it. You can see the historical trend of varieties has been to breed for greater use of acquiring more CO2 and giving up water, steepening the water use efficiency line. Okay, I got five minutes left, I guess, Ronnie, so I'm gonna try to finish up here. But what I've done, is I took John's, and you really need to think of three different things. You need to think of crop, well, you gotta plot grain yield here versus uh, a crop resource with its light CO2 and water or nitrogen. Any of these down here are resources. People like to think of water as being a stress, but it's really a, a resource that we need to utilize. And you can do it, as I've done here, through a high, uh, rectangular hyperbola like this, or you can use the plant growth laws. To me, this is more meaningful up here, and it's conceptual anyway, as they say. In a thought experiment, all the points fall on the line, right, Ronnie? <laughs> and what you look over here is you can see there's an initial resource insufficiency point over here where the crop is going to yield zero if it doesn't get more than that water, and that'll come apparent later. There's a linear portion here because that's the most limiting resource that you plot down here where it's linear. And then finally, you reach a point where it plateaus. So those three things come into play, the insufficiency point, the initial slope point, which most people biochemists would be familiar with the Michaelis-Menten equation, and a crop yield maximum point. And breeders can affect all of those, right, Joe? <laughs> Joe's my next speaker up. So if you do this and actually put points in this, and I did this in 1986 and, 19, and 2001, if you put points on that where you plot the water available for transpiration, that's not the transpiration itself, but the amount of water that is available for that, what you see is you do get that line, so these are the points. And what you see here is that the distance between here and here is the change in the amount of water that's available for transpiration, and this is the change in yield that you get for that. So basically, this is a water use 
efficiency calculation here on a seasonal basis. I call it beta in my first paper, but it's really the coefficient. So if we use this, uh, this solid black line as a reference for a given cultivar, we'll take a look at other kind of cultivars that you can produce. Now here's one that you might say is an example of a drought-tolerant genotype. What you've done is that you've tried to move this line further to the left here, so you have a little different insufficiency point here, and then you're trying to keep the yield at the same level. And if you see here, you can see that if you develop that genotype, pretty dang good, because you can see at the same water level, you can get higher yield. So that's really satisfactory towards breeders and agronomists. If you're a sustainable agronomist and you want the farmer to use less water, well, he can get the same yield as before, but with less water. So both sides should be happy with that kind of genotype. The problem that we discovered, Joe and others, is that what happens is you pull down the top part when you select for those. Now, so what you've done here is you've actually changed the slope in a way that you're still over here, but it doesn't reach the same maximum up here because remember, this is a linear slope. So what happens here, even though you think you have drought tolerance, you have rain resistance. That is, as the rains don't come, this genotype falls and yields a little bit slower than this one. And at the same time, when the rains come, that genotype doesn't respond with yield like the other one. And in fact, because uh, you really need to do counterbalancing selection, not only down here, but up here to try to keep it as you did in the prior slide. Now here's what I call an underappreciated, always underappreciated form of drought tolerance, and this is why I refer to the fact that corn has now replaced sorghum in Saunders County. And what you see here is that breeders have selected for the steepness of this line. And a steeper beta, unlike the drought-tolerant one, actually means a higher water use efficiency, where the brown line meant a lower water use efficiency. That might surprise people, but we can get into a discussion about that later. And I say when you do this, you raise the level for all producers, whether they're operating up here, operating up here, operating up here, and maybe not so much down here. So you may need a special drought-tolerant program for subsistence agriculture. Now, are those that would say, claim that when you do this, your yields crash? Of course they will, because they come down a little faster than this guy, and they also go up a little faster. So the idea here is, does this really happen? And I found in my research, no, that doesn't happen. And in fact, since my time is up here, I'm going to end on this slide here, just by pointing out that in wheat, and we've done the same thing in soybeans, but what you're looking at is a water use efficiency curve here with grain yield and available water here. You can see the different possibilities. This is the reference line. Uh, if you go for a shallower water use efficiency, the so-called drought tolerant variety, that doesn't make it at the top end, you're in bad shape. I think most of the breeding progress has come from not changing so much the insufficiency point, but making it steeper. These kind of varieties, I think, exist in the in the urban myth situation. I've never seen anything do like that, and especially not violate this guy, uh, these guys' um, um, boundary limit limit. But if you compare old and new varieties of wheat, ranging from uh, those in, uh, in Argentina, where the yields are high, the white dot, white square, or white circles represent newest varieties, the black ones represent obsolete ones. You can see in every case, we have a steeper water use efficiency. So we do breed for wide open stomates. And that's the best way to get. But we can practice agronomy 
to make sure that more of that E goes into T when we do that. So that's my message here. We can couple agronomy with genetics and, and get to the efficiency you want to be. So, sorry if I ran a little over. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, our next speaker comes to us from DuPont Pioneer. Uh, Joe Kieschel is the research director who's responsible for corn and sorghum research in the western region that spans Nebraska, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. And as you might have picked up from Dr. Speck's presentation, he was one of Jim's uh, graduate students a few years ago and, uh, and is a native of Ravenna, Nebraska, in the central part of the state, and Jim's a native of western Nebraska. So, Joe, welcome. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Speck and I were trying to figure out hybrid soybeans when I was going to school, and we did document that there's good heterosis in hybrid soybeans, but making the hybrids is very, very difficult. And we left it at that. So, uh, I want to thank the conference planning team for the invitation to DuPont Pioneer to speak about drought. And especially for myself, I grew up in an area where drought was an annual occurrence. Um, and this past year, 2012, we demonstrated the value of water in droughts. The corn on the west side of the road from where I grew up yielded less than 50 bushel per acre because it was dry land, good soil, but it was dry land. On the east side of the road, the yield was over 250 bushel per acre. Phenomenal yields, 200 bushel per acre yield differential uh, from this, basically the same soil type just due to the availability of water on a timely basis. I'm a plant breeder, and one of our jobs is to evolve corn as fast as climate change evolves. So I think there is some hope with uh, some of the pessimistic negative perception of climate change as we invest into plant breeding, we will change the architecture of the plant and the way the plant gets to yield. It takes about seven years to develop a new inbred parent to be involved in a corn hybrid, and that hybrid would be tested for at least five to seven years prior to release. So if the temperature is going up, if the disease complex is changing, if the insect spectrum is changing, we will have the opportunity to, to select those hybrids and varieties that are adapted to those changes in environment. My first year with Pioneer was 1983, and they broke me in well because that was a terrible drought in central Indiana, and half my nursery burned up. I thought it was terrible, but in looking back, it was really good because it enabled me to select the portion of my germplasm that had the stability that we needed. In that part of the country, they didn't get drought very often, so I think it actually was a a significant advantage. Okay, I'm going to hit some quick things this morning and or this afternoon, and I'm going to start off with the bad and the good things of the drought of 2012. We've reflected a lot on the bad things, but there are actually some good things that we as researchers uh, came to gain. I want to share some of the learning that we've had over the last 60 years in drought breeding with Pioneer. I want to talk about the importance of location, location, location in doing drought breeding. Really, the selection of location can make or break your success as a plant breeder breeding for drought. Talk a little about the historical journey towards gains in drought yield. Talk about drought genes and phenotypes of significance based on our observations and experiences in DuPont Pioneer. 
And finally, talk about the 2012 success of our Optimum Aquamax brand of, of hybrids that were specifically developed for those tougher water-limited areas to reduce the risk uh, and, and have a better chance of getting a crop. They still need water. Okay, let's look at the, the drought of 2012. It's bad and good attributes. With respect to bad, it did significantly reduce yield across the dryland acres. I think Ronnie's graph showed uh, that in Nebraska. And this drought was not just a western drought. It went across to the Corn Belt through Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, all the way to the east coast. Arguably one of the most broad uh, spread droughts that we've experienced. Uh, high stress on livestock. Uh, I, I have Texas as a part of my geography. and. When I would drive down to Texas, it's amazing how many trucks carrying hay were headed south to supplement the feed supply in Texas. We talked to a lot of our customers down there, and they didn't have a lot of pasture, and the feed that they did have in the pasture were a lot of nasty bushes that the, the cattle were eating, and it was really messing up a lot of the, the conception rate, the abnormalities of birth, and it really had a devastating effect on the livestock production, especially cattle, in Texas. Looking at some of the good attributes from a plant breeder looking at drought, it was a tremendous year for a, a massive amount of high quality drought data, not only from the west in Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, but also in states like Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, where they were shooting for 200 bushel per acre and they ended up with 80 or 90 bushel per acre. It really expanded our database for drought and allowed us to make some very good gains in our understanding of drought tolerance across a broad base of genetics. Irrigated, in corn, irrigated corn in Nebraska was extremely high yielding, and this has been referenced a couple times, and frankly it surprised us because if you look at the temperatures that we experienced during the maiden part of the growing season, and particularly during pollination season, we thought that it would be devastating to the corn, even the irrigated corn, because of the extremely high temperature. But the things that we had going for us were, we had a beautiful planting season, some of the best seed beds we'd ever seen. Every plant came up and every plant contributed to the yield. We were not burdened with a lot of clouds during the summer. If you get no rain, you get no clouds. We had really good, high quality sunlight that I really think helped to accelerate the photosynthetic process and uh, good water in Nebraska. And you know, it took a lot of water to create those 250 to 300 bushel yields, but the, the return on inch uh, was significant. Um, so anyway, I think we were surprised. And to be able to, to test hybrids below 100 bushel per acre on one side of the field and 250 and above on the other side of the field from a research perspective is a dream come true. You know, we don't get those opportunities very often. The other good or bad is $7 uh, per bushel corn. Now, I grew up on a farm. Farmers are ecstatic. They're buying new machinery. They're buying GPS auto steer. Uh, they're buying better equipment to do a better job of farming. So I think that's really good. Now, if you're a consumer eating food, you probably see some effect to the higher corn prices. If you're an ethanol plant producing ethanol, your basic grain coming in got very expensive. So there were a lot of winners and losers in this, and I think in some ways $7 corn is not good. We'd like to have a more steady uh, supply of corn coming in uh, it, it's slightly less, less uh, price per bushel. So I'd like to share what we have learned in our 60 years of breeding for drought in DuPont Pioneer. First of all, it's very important to choose the right testing locations and generate relevant data. 
Now, that may seem like a simple thing to do, but you have, I'm going to talk more about the location selection, but it's very difficult to breed for drought because it's like breeding for yield with extra complications. And yield breeding is tough enough by itself. But you want relative, relevant data that imposes stress at the appropriate stage of development for your targeted uh, selection regime. And in the West, it's mainly a grain fill stress period. You know, we usually have some subsoil moisture that get us to pollination, then we run out of water in our dry land later on, and to be, have, to be able to produce yield during that grain fill period under suboptimal moisture conditions is very important. Choose the best source of drought-tolerant genetic diversity. There is a lot of genetic diversity for drought. It uh, comes from different parts of the world as we look at Argentina, as we look at Romania and Hungary and other places in the world. There is a lot of diversity for drought tolerance in those areas, but it's not simple. Uh, drought's a very complex trait. There's a lot of genes responsible for drought, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Then the last point is to use the best management available to deliver total product performance. And this is extremely important. Good drought genetics with poor management is a waste of money in buying expensive seed. You really need to have the right plant populations, the right fertility program, the right residue management, the right planting date to get the most out of that genetics, to make the most of the water that's in the soil. So it really is the management plus the genetics that can get you to a, a new place in productivity in water limited areas. Choosing the right locations is, is so important. You have to start by choosing locations that have no to low rainfall. And frankly, Nebraska can get a lot of drought, and they always do get drought, but it's not a consistent drought testing location because you only get really good drought data about one out of three years. We had a research center at North Platte, Nebraska, and after going about four years in a row with no drought, we, we closed that center and moved it out to LaSalle, Colorado, under a fairly light, sandy soil that was very uniform. And since we've done that, we've done extremely well in generating drought data every year and high-quality drought data. You need uniform soils because in drought research, you are going to mine the soil for water as you go deep. You can have the flattest soil that looks very, very uniform, but if it's variable two feet down, you will express or you will determine that via your yield data. And you really have to have extremely uniform soil to do drought research. And you need a way of tracking air versus genetic signal or real genetic differences within the experiments that you set up. And you need to create a managed stress environment, which to me means we need irrigation. You go to places where you don't get rainfall, it doesn't mess up your, your drought experiments with natural rainfall, you got great soils, and then you have to have irrigation or you will burn up in most years. So you have to have irrigation and you can determine when to stress those plants. Whether you want to stress them early in the season, how much during flowering, and how much during grain fill. And you can define the recipe that's appropriate for your geography of selection. And having that right balance of testing and stress for your geography is very important. Random droughts are difficult sometimes to weight within what you are selecting for. And finally, selecting for the yield balance. And drought tolerance is great, but if you get lucky and get some timely rains, farmers will not forgive you for being 20 or 30 bushel behind those that were less drought tolerance that are yielding very well. So you need to select 
for yield under limited water supply, but you need to have the ability to capture those opportunistic rains and have outstanding yields. This is a chart uh, similar to what's been discussed by others. It shows the USDA corn estimates. And you know, the 2012 was tough, 123 bushel per acre, 7.7 metric tons per hectare. And, but if you look at 2012, and then look to the left on the graph, you can see 1988 and 1983 with those significant depressions. And arguably, the drought of 2012 was worse than 88 or 83, and yet look at the level of yield. I think this is a tribute to the genetic improvement that we've made, but also to the management improvement with no-till and uh, better herbicides and things like that. I also draw your attention to the other crops on this uh, slide. There's China rice, and if, it, interesting, if you look back in the 1950s, the yields were not that much different from hybrid rice in China and hybrid corn. The difference is, is the level of investment made in corn in the U.S. and other parts of the world versus the investment into hybrid rice in China. And if you look at India rice, I think that shows really a lack of, of investment in, in those crops. Now, if we look at the demand for food that's coming, we need to increase the slope of rice to look very much like that corn slope to have a chance to supply the, the food that we need to, to feed the growing population. As you look at our drought research in Pioneer, there are several key components. One is having breeders that are dedicated to drought research. And we do have uh, breeders in the Western Corn Belt in Texas, Kansas, Colorado, and, and even places obscure as Johnston, Iowa, that are dedicated to drought research. And their, their, their yield tests are being grown under uh, managed stress environments. Uh, we're leveraging some sites in California that are very dry, in, in Chile, around uh, Voluco, Chile. And we've created an infrastructure that's extremely predictable and we think relevant towards developing products that are uh, needed by our customers. We have a lot of unique tools within our toolbox for understanding the environments. We have an environmental classification system that helps us define the environment the soil type, the amount of moisture that was in the soil, the daily temperature, the daily rainfall, the humidity, and understanding the environments that which you're testing at is very important if you wanna make sense of the results that you get at the end of the year. We also have some very good statistical tools that help to sort out the error from the genetic signal or the true differences due to the genetics. As you look at our Optimum Aquamax products, uh, we've used a lot of what we call our AYT, our Accelerated Yield Technology, to create these products. A lot of this is uh, about molecular marker use, having thousands of genes sequenced and understanding the native difference from these native genes across uh, entities, and then having doubled haploids, which are 100% homozygous inbreds. And this allows us to study genes of minor effects in the total performance that we see at the end of the year. And the, with respect to our targeted drought breeding, we're still not up to full pipeline. We should be within the next year or two, and we're looking forward to even more uh, better products to be released. And then the last uh, box is about appropriate management techniques. And I'll draw your attention to the middle one, which is grower systems trials. And it really relates back to what was discussed earlier this morning about you have to take it to the farmer. 
You have to get it in a farmer's hand so they feel it and see it. We gave away a lot of free seed of our Optimum Aquamax products, and we challenged the growers. Plant this hybrid next to yours at your plant population, then the next strip in the field, turn the plant population up 5,000 plants per acre. So if they were growing at 15,000, that would mean they would be growing at 20,000. And they would do that for both their hybrid and the Aquamax product. And in doing these grower system trials, they saw and they believed. And um, it really had helped our uh, momentum in marketing these products. So if you think about drought genes, what are the significant ones? And the first one I'm going to mention may surprise some of you, but I think it's glyphosate resistance. Inherently, glyphosate resistance does not change that plant's drought tolerance, but if you look at the culture in which those plants are grown, it makes a significant difference in the drought tolerance. It enables weed control without tillage, preserving valuable residue. In areas where we get drought, we do not have rain to leach the herbicide into the soil to kill the, the weed seeds. So we need to have contact herbicides, and glyphosate is very good, very effective, and we can save the residue because we don't have to do tillage. It allows the crop residue to insulate, put a nice mat of residue on the soil, and this saves not only water, but also soil. When you get rain, you get less rainfall, more percolation of the water into the soil. Um, and in bottom line, water is available to the crop rather than to evaporation, to Jim's previous point. We want the crop to have as little evaporation as possible, and let's run it through transpiration. And finally, uh, drought is not an easy trait. Is there a silver bullet out there that can make a huge increase in drought yield? We haven't seen it yet if they exist. In DuPont Pioneer, we've been screening transgenes for drought tolerance longer than any other company, and we've had a lot of frustration. We're not giving up. We're putting a lot of resources into continuing to try to find a significant engineered gene that we can put into the plant, but it's been very difficult. We are using a whole genome prediction to look at thousands of native genes to have a set of research data comparing those thousands of individuals, maybe even from the same progeny cross, a good parent by a bad parent, to sort out those genes that are significant in explaining the drought tolerance that we see. I'm going to end just on a, uh, a few slides on what we think are the multiple modes of action of drought tolerance. One revolves around water use efficiency of those plants, another is about stay green, and then finally stomatal control. Here's a picture of minimal leaf rolling, and this is side by side in a field. This was taken in 2011, and on the right you see a lot of leaf rolling. And that leaf rolling can be good because the stomates close, it's stopping the water from escaping the plant, but those plants are not photosynthesizing. On the left is one of our Aquamax products, which they tend to grow a little slower early in the season, conserve some water, and uh, they're less to, they, they roll uh, less frequently than the competitive, more drought-susceptible products. Better stay green under stress. And this could be a function of the root mass that's there, you know, mining the water and the nitrogen and other nutrients that are in the soil, but our, our Optima Aquamax products tend to have better stay green side-by-side side with those that are less tolerant. Minimal leaf firing. Once these leaves fire, turn brown, you get necrosis, those leaves are dead. They don't come back to life. So those that can kind of go into a semi-dormancy state and wait for the next rain can really make a huge difference in the ability to recover and to create yield. Improved kernel depth, or, or excuse me, kernel fill. 
A lot of times we'll get pollination, but as the drought stress comes on, we'll get kernel abortion, and sometimes uh, it can abort most of the kernels on the ear, where our uh, more drought-tolerant uh, Optima Aquamax products tend to fill those kernels better than the more susceptible varieties. This is the bottom line performance of the Aquamax products in 2012. Under water-limited environments, our products labeled Aquamax were 8.9% higher yielding than the drought-tolerant products we were comparing to, which was an 8.5 bushel per acre advantage. And if you do the math there, you're looking at yields a little less than 100 bushel per acre in these environments and over 3,600 uh, hybrid comparisons. Under favorable conditions, looking at the same optimum Aquamax products, we were showing uh, almost a 2% advantage in yield, or 4.2 bushel per acre, which would be average yields of above 200 bushel per acre. And again, uh, had a lot of comparisons there, a lot of those from irrigation. So bottom line, uh, rain or shine, we need to have products that can handle the conditions. Uh, last year, uh, over 2 million acres were grown with this technology. It'll be doubled this year, and uh, we're looking forward to continue to feed that pipeline. So bottom line, uh, genetics is very important, but it really needs to go with optimal irrigation management and uh, the right density, plant densities, the tillage, the inputs. We're doing some work on limited irrigation. Uh, there's some initiatives in Texas. One is called 200 on 12. It's going into those acres, areas where the aquifer is reducing, and how do they get 200 bushel per acre on 12 inches of irrigation water? And these same areas used to have 30 inches of water, and they could grow 250 to 300 bushel per acre. So they're learning to live with less water and to do it as efficiently as possible. I want to thank everyone for your, your attention and look forward to questions. Thank you. I failed to mention to you at the beginning, the way that we're gonna run the panel is we will have three of our speakers before the break, we'll have a break about three o'clock, and then bring the other three speakers back after the break. If you have questions that you want to address to any particular speaker, please jot them down, because we will have an open panel uh, time at the end of the presentations. I'll now invite Marta Garcia, our next speaker, Marta, is an early stage commercial assessment leader for Dow AgroSciences in Indianapolis, Indiana. Her work focuses on insect resistance and herbicide tolerance traits for all genetically modified crops. Previously, she was a manager in R&D in both Indianapolis and in Madrid, Spain, a project manager in the UK and a field research biologist in Seville, Spain. She hails from Spain, as you might guess. So please join me in welcoming Marta Garcia. Thank you. Okay. Let's see the slides. Well, first of all, thanks. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's the first time. Let me see. It's the first time for me in Nebraska. So I couldn't. I couldn't think of a better reason for me to be here today. And uh, I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. So uh, let me see. Okay. So some of, this, of the slides that I'm going to be using <laughs> have been used by different presenters uh, before, maybe with different format. But in the end, I think we are, look, are looking at the same world, at the same picture, and interpreting that with uh, pretty much clarity on, on what we have ahead of us, which is the challenge that we all are facing. We've been talking about uh, population growth 
and numbers that have been thrown there uh, about 9 billion people in the world, how we do have already today nutritional deficits that can only go in a worse direction when we see those population growths coming into play. Um, the need of protein, we've heard that as well from previous presenters, and how there's a growth of middle classes in developing countries that really want to have access to diets that we all have. Here today we will have a steak, probably, right? So everybody wants that. <laughs> so the protein demand is, is ahead of us. The, the constraints we've, we talked about, uh, and uh, several of you are working hardly on, on those, how the limited arable land is there. Uh, we, you know, there's very few limit, uh, arable land available to us, and uh, we need to accommodate as well land for those two more billion people that need places to live, right? So, and water, which is obviously the center of this conference. So, in the end, we need an increased uh, food production. And uh, I've been hearing today a lot of different angles of this same challenge, which is uh, very enlightening for me. This has given me a lot of perspective because we all work in our own silo, right? At some extent, we are all working to face this challenge with the technologies and knowledge base that we all have or can, can work on or can impact. Uh, so I'm going to focus quite a lot on that sentence that you can see in the bottom of my slide, which is that farmers have never been expected to accomplish so much. Indians farmers are the ones that are going to be producing this, this food feed uh, everywhere in the world, right? Um, so here, uh, as you've heard, I work for the agrosciences. I've been in this company for 12 years now, uh, and I have some more even experience in the crop protection business of our you know, company. I've been working back in Europe in, in the development of uh, crop protection products. In the last five years here in the US, my focus is in season traits, uh, particularly traits. But uh, no need to say that me being from the agroscientists, I hope what, what I'm doing here today is not just representing my company, but representing the industry where I work and what we are doing to contribute to this challenge from our you know, ability and the areas where we can be impacting. Okay? So uh, my talk is going to be focused on the insect resistant traits and how they can contribute to this uh, food security that we all are looking for. Uh, our tagline in the agroscience is a solution for the growing world, and this is one, but not the only one, but one that definitely can have a positive impact. Uh, let me go. Yeah. So, um, well, I forgot to mention in the previous slide my, my job title, which is pretty complex, and uh, it takes me always a long to explain. But uh, two, two key things to point out, I am in the last couple of years just focused on corn, and uh, so if you're going to talk about insulin resistant traits, you have to talk corn. And so that's why I'm here today, I guess. And uh, I have a, a, a job that is a hybrid between R&D and, and commercial or business. In the past, I was a researcher, but now I'm more focused on trying to uh, help our research community in, in the company to direct their efforts, their research, their thoughts towards what we think will be the most valuable products in the markets that we face, right? So it's kind of a look for the future, which I think is very suited for, for the talk that we are going to be seeing today. So why corn, right? Uh, I, other than saying because I like it, but that's not a good reason for me to be talking about corn here today. Uh, look at this graph, uh, which shows you some data on the major eight crops that contribute to global crop uh, production or productivity. And it just made me think that the first two are C4 plants, so that's, uh, as we were hearing before, sugarcane and corn. But, uh, you know, there is a good reason for, for uh, corn being such a relevant crop, uh, and not only in this country, which, as we know, 
uh, holds is the number one uh, corn producer of the world. I think we produce 37% of the total corn that is produced in the world here in the U.S. with 20% uh, of the land. So our, our yieldings are, uh, you know, remarkable and not not beaten by any other uh, area, mostly. But uh, corn also is it's very important because uh, if you look at this list of crops, they are all uh, addressing one of the four Fs that we talk about always, like food, uh, feed, fuel, or fiber. And, and corn, by its nature, is one of the most versatile crops, right? Uh, the, the, the production of corn is des destined almost equally to food fuel, and there's as well some, some food, so some food destination. So it's a very versatile crop, and on top of that, is one of the crops that has been more broadly uh, studied, and there's a lot of knowledge, as my previous uh, uh, you know, colleague, Joe, has, has been showing you. So uh, if we talk about corn, and this is uh, another version of the graphs that we've seen today. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, you know, having looked at this uh, in a table before, in, in Joe's presentation right before this, doesn't make it less remarkable. Think about this, you know. What other crop has been able to do this? What other crop has been able to capitalize or materialize the, the beauty and the benefits of uh, heterosis better than corn. You know, soybean, we are still looking for how to make hybrid soybean, isn't it? So the, the, the growth of, of soybean doesn't look like that. Uh, it, it is corn. It's a very peculiar and interesting crop. And, and obviously, hybrids, as we know, and, uh, and we've seen that before, double and single crosses were not having the key to start that slope. And, and they still are there, and, and my kudos to the breeders, which uh, keep their good job and are, are in charge of keeping that slope, at least at the one point, how much, 1.2%, one point, uh, hopefully more than that percent a year. We expect that from them, we take that for granted. But that is not the only technology that contributes to this growth, and we've seen that as well in Joseph's slides, so I'm gonna go. So we've seen mechanization, the use of fertilization, the, the incorporation at the greater scale of crop protection products did significantly you know, change that slope uh, in the 50s, 60s mostly. Uh, intensive crop management, plant densities, whatnot. And uh, here, and uh, one part of that, as I mentioned, uh, that I'm gonna go for it's, uh, or speak to about is biotechnology and how biotechnology is contributing, has contributed, and hopefully will continue contributing to keep those, those slopes and those yield gains. A uh, key message from today for me uh, is that we've all talked about the complex, the complex of the challenge we face, the, how complex our problems are, and how we need many solutions. There's no one solution that is going to solve the problem. And all of them are needed at greater or lesser extent, and, uh, and biotechnology is, is, is one of them. Just that's how I see it. You know, it's not one of those alone would have gotten the job done. Um, so, speaking of biotechnology, a couple of uh, graphs here that probably you have seen. There's, this is an annual report. This is the last version from uh, just a month ago, I think, uh, that captures 2012 data. These, these curves are very encouraging as well. You know, uh, I, I wish my bank account would look like that for the last 10 years, which it doesn't. But uh, uh, the adoption of biotechnology has is, is, is been uh, amazing. It's been significant. It's one of the you know, technologies that has had greater and faster adoption from the ones we've seen. And, uh, and uh, this, this seems not to change. I mean, we're seeing that over the, over the years. Maybe key messages here is uh, we all know that there are four crops that drive this, soybean and corn are number one and two. Um, but uh, we are starting to see that being the US, the country number one that started to grow uh, these kind of technologies, 
and still the target of most of our research and, and, and product launches. Now we are starting to see how these technologies are, are being uh, used in other developing countries. This is the graph you can see uh, on the upper left and how the blue line represents the adoption in acres on developing countries. Uh, this line is including Brazil and Argentina, which are big drivers of this growth, but also China and India and South Africa, which are the, together the five number one developing countries in biotechnology. And adoption rates, I think, cotton, cotton uh, in India, and people can speak up to the better than I do, 93% of adoption in BT cotton in India, which farmers see the benefit, right, and, uh, and, they, and they use it. So um, this is a very busy slide, and uh, it's not meant to be read. <laughs> Some of you might have seen it. So I would be very uh, encouraged by anybody at the end of the, of the room <laughs> being able to read that, that uh, small print. But it's really talking about um, uh, the, the, the introductions of these biotech products over the years. And, uh, and for me, there's a lot of, of learning that can be taken away from this one slide. Uh, but definitely, not only the acres have increased, but the number of products as well, these are all brands. So uh, I'm gonna just uh, you know, take you to the way I describe these ways of technologies. And as we know, not every country, not every geography, not every policy is, is uh, enabling the adoption of these at the same extent. So uh, some of us in the US are working on what I call the fourth generation of insulin resistant traits. Some other countries are working with first or second generations because the level of deployment, et cetera, is, is being different in, in the, depending on the countries. But, but the US is still representing the, 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 the most advancement in this particular technology. Um, for those who has never seen this, and uh, I don't know if there is anybody like that in the audience, but. I'm coming from Europe and I used to work in crop protection. I've been working quite a lot in insecticide uh, development uh, and new insecticides from our company. I remember in 2003 uh, working with cotton growers in the south of Spain, in Seville. That was a horrible year for cotton ballworm, I think it's uh, Helicoverpa armigera. There was no way to control this pest. I mean, we were doing every five, six days an application of tank mixes of organophosphates and uh, pyrethroids and all kinds of insecticides with not much success, honestly, because of resistance and the complexity of the pest. And growers were saying that they needed guns. <laughs> that was the last resource that they had. No, and uh, when, when I moved to work in biotech and I started to see those crops, and you know, the beauty of a crop that is self-enabled to defend itself from, from pests 24-7. You don't need to scout, you don't need to prepare the tractor, you don't need to buy the insecticide, the petrol, the water do the spray, maybe on a Sunday because it was raining the rest of the week. It's just give, given you know, growers a, a, a tool to really plan better their interventions in the farm, give them time back, and not to, not to say all of those conveniences that we talk about, and the cost, right? The cost of insecticides and, and equipment and et cetera. The, another in, in funny comment is that Brazilian growers that I, I worked with some few years ago describe those uh, BT plants as plastic plants. You know, they are look like plastic plants. You know, they are always green. They're always perfect. You know, yes, that's that's how they look. So, uh, but just uh, coming back to the slide and trying to go uh, uh, quicker, but. So there's, there's been four ways in, in, in distance resistant traits and the way we have developed those. The first generation are those that I was talking about. They were really designed for one crop, you know, one, one pest, one crop, sorry, one pest, one gene, that's what I meant. So they, they had one protein that had been developed for controlling one pest, call it Lepidoptera in corn or later corn rootworm, right? And they, they've been used and are still being used for, with great success for a long time. 
but in some cases, growers needed both kind of protection. And talking about corn, they needed the protection from Lepidoptera pests above ground and corn rootworm below ground. So the next generation of products that we started to see were stacks. They call them the stacks. We were putting those two together in the same hybrid so growers would have full protection from pests. And that still is been uh, very successful and is what is driving a lot of uh, products in, in this country still and in other countries that are being adopting this a little bit later. What is really new and it started more in the 2007, so it's relatively more new, is, is when we started to see that uh, we, they were starting to see resistant problems, and I'm not surprised, you know, overexposure to these uh, uh, actives was generating uh, resistant development in some of the pests. So we, we wanted our products to be more durable together with the fact that here in the U.S., the EPA as well was uh, requiring for that reason as well the implementation of refuge. So we started to think that a, a good, one of the best ways to really uh, you know, combine uh, those two needs together was pyramids, pyramiding traits. That means that we put several modes of actions in the same corn product to tackle the same pest. So if for some reason that pest, pest becomes resistant to one of them, there will still be another mode of action taking care of it. So that's been the pyramid generation of products, and uh, we have a, a lot of them now in the market. Um, I'm mentioning one of them as, as one of the ones that today uh, has probably the more uh, potent uh, stack of traits. It's called Smart Stacks. It was launched in 2010. But there's many more, and more coming, right? And then the last fourth generation, which is as well pretty new, is uh, the, the fact that uh, thanks to that refuge reduction that these pyramid products have enabled, uh, the EPA recently approved that the industry was developing what we call refuge in the back. So the refuge hybrids go in the back, and this has been very, very nicely adopted by growers, which really like it. So what's coming? And that's uh, my very much in the bottom of the slide. But we are all working on new mode of actions. We thought at the point that the investment had been done that we were never going to need any more money in these particular technologies. Guess what? That that's not the case. We need new mode of actions because nature always wins, and we need to be ready for shifts in pests and the resistant development. So we are all investing quite a lot of money on that. Now these technologies are also taking two other crops, and the number one that is coming next is soybeans. And uh, we can argue about this, but it is my thinking, looking at what has happened in corn and cotton, that soybean is going to take the same path, and we're going to see a great deal of insect resistant traits in, in soybeans and a lot of benefits for the growers on that. And uh, I think that's it. It was, it was my number one slide. So, no, a couple of... Um, I'm good with them? A couple of more minutes. I have uh, only... Um, I'm going to just direct uh, my talk to one particular application, which is, uh, to me, Beautiful example of how insect resistant traits can become a, a drought gene that I thought Joe was going to mention, and I'm going to take you there. This is just a statistics on uh, the, the level of adoption of insect resistant traits in the U.S. I think it's a very mature market. They're at 70, 73% last year, and uh, the rest are refuge hybrids and conventional corn. But that was, my, that was my comment. I thought Joe was going to say that this was another drought gene, because it, it kind of is. Uh, it is the corn rootworm resistant uh, you know, uh, trait. Uh, the corn rootworm is that beetle at the bottom of the slide. Uh, it eats the corn roots, not the adult, but the larvae. And you can see there are a good picture of sun roots and how damaged they get. So what happens to this corn when it's uh, attacked at this level? Its ability to extract water, any available water in the, in the ground is really limited. So this picture, which looks very much to the drought-tolerant uh, corn that we saw before, it's, it's actually when you combine 
a high infestation of conroot wind with a hot and dry climate. So we just exaggerate the, the impact of the drought. So uh, a lot of research has been going into this technology. Uh, someone has called this pest the $1 billion pest because it was uh, the kind of value that they saw when it was launched. Today I was looking at some numbers and uh, at the price of corn today, I think we can multiply that value by two, if not three. So it's a really important trait that is being uh, very broadly adopted in, in the US in all of the areas that benefit and need it. So it's about 50% of the acres. And just wanted to show in this slide how as well for corn rootworm, we are starting to see uh, the, the use of product, pyramided products uh, for the control of this pest. So a lot of data, a lot of uh, success stories, and uh, the last slide is uh, uh, just to show how, you know, definitely this is uh, innovation and uh, new, new technologies are not cheap. We are all investing quite a lot of money. This is showing the private industry, but the you know, uh, public sector is no different. But we still uh, think that it is worth that we are able to contribute to our own uh, level and with our uh, know-how in helping growers uh, challenge, you know, facing this challenge that we have been talking about today. I hope uh, I, I meet the expectations of the audience and uh, happy to get questions. Thank you. We have just a few minutes for some questions for these three speakers. So if I can get Joe and Jim to join Marta at the table. If you have a question that you'd like to address to one or all of them, there are two mics on the floor that we used earlier this morning. So are there questions from the floor for, for this first part of the panel? Everybody's looking for coffee. Ken Kassman's headed to the mic. Ken? Yes, hi Ronnie, and thanks to the speakers. Excellent talks. But I have two questions for our guests, not for my colleague. Um, You're off the the, and, and they are, they're very simple questions. So how, with all the investment that's going on in maize improvement, how do, you, how do the seed companies explain the fact that irrigated corn yields in the U.S. have not increased for 12 years? USDA data. That's question one. And the second question is, while the rate of gain in corn yields has remained linear, for the past 40 years, the private sector seed company investment in crop genetic improvement has increased five-fold in inflation-adjusted terms. So a linear rate of increase in yield, but a five-fold increase in investment in inflation-adjusted terms. The question is, is that a viable business model? Why don't you ask a hard question, Ken? <laughs> Well, I think that one is for Joe, perhaps. Well, I'll give it a shot. And uh, Ken, I knew you, it'd be a tough question if it came from you. But uh, um, yield is hard to measure. You know, what is your baseline? I think we talked about baseline earlier. Um, in, in our research plots, you know, we do an era study where we actually grow vintages of hybrids created over the decade. And we can show, based on that uh, orthogonal comparison grown at modern day management practices, which is ex extremely high plant populations, high fertility, we are indeed making progress. Now, if you take the modern genetics and grow them at plant populations that farmers were growing 10, 15 years ago, you will not see any uh, significant gain in yield 
at those older cultural practices. So that's why I really stress the importance of evolving progressive management practices. It's, it's residue to save moisture. It's the right fertility at the right time, the fungicides. And uh, you know, it, it all needs to come together to really gain uh, what we need. Now, some, would, some people would argue it's lack of genetic diversity, our variability. We're exhausting it. We've selected all the good genes. There's none left. We don't think that's the case. As we look at the worldwide genome, there's a tremendous amount of diversity out there. Uh, although it's tough to capture that positive diversity because there are so many negative genes. But with molecular engineering and genome understanding, we can start pulling genes more or less small regions into our genome. So we're very bullish uh, in building new products. It's very expensive. And that's your 5X uh, investment rate, but we have to increase the rate of genetic gain to satisfy our stockholders and our customers. I think Jim is itching for a mic. Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Ken is my colleague. If you don't uh, get corn yields high, as Ken suggests, then we're gonna move that corn-soybean yield ratio down to 2.8. <laughs> The point is here is that the maximum yield based on a, a conversion of light energy into uh, dry matter for soybean is 120 and corn is about 3.25 times that. The best way to measure whether you're improving uh, corn or soybean yields is to look at Nebraska's irrigated trend lines, which is about 2.0 bushels per acre for all corn. And so I know of no area, Ken, where you can increase, a, a, make a linear rate of gain into a, an accelerating one, except by applying annual percentage rates to your gain rather than just, but linear should be sufficient to get us where we want to go. The point is we, need, we do need more agronomy to get the uh, expression of the genetic potential that these guys have put in so far. That's the limiting factor, I think. We gotta improve it, and that's what Key Joe is saying. Gotta add a package to those. I think there's a question here. Yeah, very rapid question for the first two speakers. Uh, most of the work, or the results uh, shown, were uh, showed the results of the different hybrids in terms of uh, yield maximization. Seems to be very important, but uh, what is the performance in terms of uh, water productivity? If water is really the, the limiting factor, what is the performance uh, in terms of water productivity in general for those hybrids? And a very rapid question for the third speaker. Has there been any work with respect to drought tolerance similar to the one that was done for uh, pest control? Thank you. Did you guys get that? I got the last one, not the middle one, that was, or the first one. So the first one was basically uh, the the presentations were heavily focused around yield maximization. And I think his question is, what about water use efficiency? Is that yes. correct? Yeah, water productivity. And then Marta, he had a separate question for you. Okay, uh, is this working? Yeah. I think so, right? So no, um, the question I understood was, uh, what are the uh, efforts that we are putting down for water use efficiency, uh, same as insular system? That, that was the question, right? I think uh, you covered quite a lot of that, and uh, he, I think that by talking about Pioneer, he very well represented the industry and how we, we all are looking for, for ways through different means and integration of different technologies to try to increase the water efficiency of our crops, call it breeding, call it advanced uh, you know, breeding technologies, call it transgenics. 
uh, unfortunately, those, those traits are much more complex, and uh, you mentioned that. It's not, it's not that simple, and, and that's been learned the hard way, and that's taken a lot of those 5x investments that we were talking about. You know, how, how, because uh, when we started this journey, I don't think we were so aware of the complexities that they represented. But yes, we are trying. We are trying and we are putting a lot of money down because, by the way, all of the investments that we make in corn, uh, the beauty of corn being one of the crops where we do know so much about, is that uh, they have applicability in, in not only the U.S. but other countries out of the U.S. and not only corn, but sometimes you, know, you can leverage a lot of the investment that we do in corn in other crops. So that's why, as well, corn takes so much of our you know, pockets. Jim, you have a quick comment? Quick comment on that, uh, the maximum water productivity for corn is 11.2 bushels per acre inch of water. For soybeans, it's 3.44. That is the water productivity boundary that Patricia Grassini and Ken and my colleague and others uh, have done for corn and I've done for soybeans. So just like there's a maximum yield, there's a maximum water use efficiency, water productivity. And this was done back, French and Schultz published this paper many years ago. And Sa Victor Sadras, who was here last year, talked about it. So. Okay, we'll take two more questions, Mark and Don. Mark? Okay, this, this question kind of goes back to Ken's comment about business model. And, Joe, you were talking about uh, being able to pull genes in from that, that responded regionally to, uh, to the climatic conditions or the production uh, inputs that the crop faces. What's the business model for doing that in some of the developing parts of the world that don't have the ability to pay that we do here in the U.S.? Good question and a challenging question. Uh, you know, we invest a lot towards the developed markets because that's where the customers uh, more readily recognize the extra value. We certainly would like to get into the developing countries once the infrastructure is there and that we can demonstrate the value of the products. Uh, you know, we hope to take advantage of all the genetic uh, understanding that we've gained from places like the U.S. and take them to places like Argentina and Romania. You know, once we find these genes that are fairly significant in a given background with a given uh, timing of drought, you know, we will, we will take those discoveries to the developing countries, you know, and, and take advantage of that. And, you know, the business model uh, that was mentioned earlier, biotechnology is very powerful, you know, we, we can accomplish things that uh, in many cases are not available in native diversity, but it's very expensive. It's a high risk, high reward adventure, and uh, we're in, for, in it for the long run, and we're willing to take some of those expensive, uh, high risk, high, re or high reward endeavors. Last question, Don Hutchins. Okay, I know time's running out, and since I work for the Nebraska Corn Board, I hate to ask a question about rice, but in an earlier slide you showed the need for countries like China and, and uh, to increase their investments and production in rice research. And so I'm, I'm interested, is, is the industry spending as much money or an equivalent amount of money in, in doing uh, more genetically modified research in that area? And then Marta, since you, uh, you're in Spain, give us a quick sense of how the European Union is ever going to embrace uh, genetically engineered crops. Uh, did you make any progress? That, that's I enough, mean, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Spain made progress, but the rest of the European Union's dragging their feet. 
Uh, just a couple quick comments on rice uh, relative to DuPont Pioneer. We are investing in the hybridization of rice. And one of the limitations right now is a sterility system that's uh, effective and getting a good seed yield. Right now, a lot of it's done with hand labor, very laborious, uh, but the value is there and uh, we're willing to, to do it the inefficient way. So we are investing a lot in the male sterility systems to make the hybrid. And to meet the growing population need, rice is extremely important, and we need to make the investment. And as we look at China, it's got its challenges, but there's tremendous opportunity there also. Marta? And um, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd probably be Dow's CEO or something. <laughs> but uh, no, just jokes aside, yeah, I'm coming from Spain. Spain is one of the countries that uh, grows actually the um, broader uh, acreage of biotech crops and money tank corn is, is the only corn trade approved in the country and it's been grown for a long time successfully. No other trades have been approved, so that's the only tool that they have. Is the first wave that I was talking about. The, maybe the only answer I can give is that Europe is not one. Europe is not one place, it's not one country, it's not one mindset. Europe is a, a complex co collective uh, of a lot of different countries with different policies, with different mindsets and with different interests. And it's very hard to uh, come together to one place with you when you have that many stakeholders. And uh, that, that's driving to me that in, par in particular. Well, I hope you will agree that our, our beginning of this panel was very illuminating in terms of crop improvement and some of the history that has gone into uh, that part of being able to be more resilient or moving toward more resiliency. The second part of the panel um, offers as much interest in terms of agronomic practice and in terms of precision agriculture and irrigation advancements. Our first speaker on the panel is Bob Klein. Uh, Dr. Klein is a professor of agronomy with our West Central Research and Extension Center at North Platte, Nebraska, uh, in the west central part of the state. Uh, Bob's work includes both dry land and irrigated crop production of wheat, corn, soybeans, grain sorghum, dry beans, and sunflowers. And he has the distinction, as I was sharing with some of our other panelists here a few minutes ago, of being one of the longest serving members of the University of Nebraska team. I think at 52 years that Bob has been associated with the University of Nebraska. Uh, and that's a huge testament in and of itself. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Bob Klein. Thank you, and I think we'll move right into the presentation. There we go. Okay. We always talk about the issues in Nebraska and so forth, and some people would say in Nebraska that the ranking of the football team is our most important one, and then other people would probably say the new Haymarket Arena, and I guess it's sold out for basketball, so that's pretty successful. Whoa. And then Nebraska joining the Big Ten is another issue, but I don't think that's really the major issues. I think the water issue is the big one in Nebraska, and that's what we're going to really isolate in on, is the water issues. This is what a corn crop looked like at 2002 at North Platte, Nebraska, which is, you know, about halfway to Denver or west central Nebraska. It, the corn just came up and died ran out of moisture and so forth. So we've experienced a lot of droughts in that area. 
This is one of Steve Benzinger's wheat nurseries at Clay Center on April the 29th. Looks pretty good at Clay Center. That's in South Central Nebraska. This is what the one looked like in McCook at South Central Nebraska. Doesn't look too bad, but take a look at the one at North Platte. A disaster, yeah. We really got a disaster. So that's from planting last fall and not having any soil water. And then this will affect, we're gonna have a poor wheat crop in 2013, but because we don't have good residue to plant in in 2014, it will affect our corn and sorghum yield. So we're ready in a three-year drought, and we'll talk more about that. You can see how important it is. This is our oh, just plant the other day out at our uh, water lab near Brule, Nebraska. That residue is really important to us. This is the article in the Journal Star about North Platte. Just uh, it said North Platte is among the driest places in the country, even drier than in Utah, which averages nine inches of precipitation per year. And uh, it says the, uh, we went 365 days without recording more than an inch. The rain we got, a lot of it was small, which evaporated. And on April 28th to uh, 2000, excuse me, 2012, we had a year later 7.23 inches, which breaks the old record set in the early 30s by about two-thirds of an inch lower. So we're really dry at North Platte. And Ronnie talked about some of these. There's drought in there, you know, some even 38-year droughts and so forth. The one I remember, and he talked about it a little bit, is the one 52 to 57. We're going to talk a little bit about that. This is our big problem in Nebraska is the average. You can see the average is 22.78 inches, but how we vary from that line a lot. This is at North Platte, 2011 to 2012. Now, we were really lucky for our 2012 wheat crop because we got an inch of moisture in September of 2011. It's about the only rain we had late in the summer. It quit raining in July, but about the middle of September, we had a good inch of rain that helped our planting conditions, and so we got a pretty good wheat crop in 2012. Not the best, but pretty good. But you can see what happened there, like in June, uh, we got less than a half inch of moisture in 2012, where the average there is what, three and a half. You can see how dry it was right there. Okay, born at David City, about 50 miles northwest of here, and I think this really created my interest in water conservation. And you can see the years there, 55 and 56 were really dry. We got about half the precip. At our farm, I remember 54 was really dry too, as well as 53, less than average. So we had several dry years there. How do we farm back then? Well, we plowed, we disc, we harrowed, done a lot of things to what? Prepare a seed bed, because the planters we had back then were runner-style planters. They wouldn't cut through residue, so we had to prepare a seedbed to plant in. We didn't have the good herbicides to control weeds, so that was another reason why we did so much tillage beforehand, preparing a seedbed, and then after planting to control weeds with several cultivations and so forth, which all dried out the soil. 
So when we got ready to plant, we had the soil dried out, so we had to use a lister to get down the moisture. And I remember if we got any rain, we'd have a lot of washing because we didn't have any residue to protect the soil. We had a lot of wind erosion. I remember my room was on the second story. I remember some of those years in the 50s of the soil blowing. And this is what our corn crop looked like a lot of those years. No ears. We cut silage one time. We found out that was a real mistake, and I'll talk about that just a little bit later. We fed cattle, not quite this many, but what did we do to feed our cattle those years? We hauled corn out of Minnesota. Yeah, not a very profitable thing to do is haul corn out of Minnesota to feed cattle in Nebraska. But as a teenager, something you could never do today was CDLs. I made a lot of trips to Minnesota hauling corn back those summers, but uh, that wasn't very, pro I think we made our expenses, but we got a lot of exercises, all we got feeding cattle those years. Let's go back and take a look at some conditions out in southwest Nebraska, Grant, Nebraska. This is 2005. And see what the corn looked like. Now, this farmer did use skip row corn. We wouldn't recommend in these conditions you plant skip row corn because of evaporation. We want crop residue out there. But it didn't make any difference. Here's a farmer right in about that same area that planted sunflower. They're supposed to be drought tolerant. The farmer didn't bother to harvest that field. But what's interesting, right in that same area was this farmer. Now, how can he have green corn when the guy couldn't even raise sunflowers in that same area? Well, let's go and investigate. And you can see there's pretty nice ears on there. This is harvest time, but what's different about this field is what? There's some residue on there. I said to the farmer, I says, you know, what's the history on this field? Well, he said, two years ago, I had a good wheat crop. Last year, I had a pretty good corn crop. I heard about your skip row. I thought I'd try it. Now I got a pretty good corn crop. You know, what you can do with good crop residue. Okay. Got a question here. Normally we would have clickers out there, but we've got too big a group to really use clickers on. The E and ET, and Jim Speck talked about that, is about what percent of the corn is planted in the good wheat residue? And the answer there is about 15%. Let's talk about some of the research that's went on there. And we can see here that if you got bare soil out there, about 35% of the crop water use will be in evaporation. If you plant that in some good wheat residue, you can get that down to about 15% or a 20% reduction. Now, if we say corn uses about 25 inches, if we take 20 times 25, that's five inches. The other thing is what? If we got bare soil out there, we had some tillage operations. And so we probably lost another one to one and a half inches from the tillage. So that's six inches of water, six and a half, that we don't have to apply or we save if we're in dry land or rain fed, whatever you want to call it. We can really save. Norm started some of this work at North Platte and then went on to Kansas and continued it. Okay, let's talk about our ecofallow system that we developed back in the 70s. Basically, it's spraying 
winter wheat stubble after winter wheat harvest and then plant no-till corn into it the following spring. And what's really important is we want some height on that wheat stubble. Catch snow. I know in talking to the Extension Educator Alliance last week, uh, we had some meetings up there on pheasants and so forth on how tall stubble affects pheasants. And he says, yeah, if you had 14-inch high stubble, you caught 14 inches of snow. If you caught, had 6-inch high, you caught about 6 inches of snow because all the rest of it blew off the field and so forth with all the winds we've had. Okay, a few years ago in 2004, I went in Red Willow County in the McCook area and found some real good wheat stubble, 18 inches tall. Measured the soil water with one of these probes like this. And I got down 39 inches. Went right across the field. There was some stubble right across the fence, I should say, about nine inches tall. Only had 13 inches of soil. How much more water is that? Well, if you look, we got 26 inches more soil water. In that type of soil, we got about two inches per foot of soil water. So if you multiply that, that's an extra, what, 4.33 inches? You know, we figure in our system out there, it's worth about what? 12 bushels per inch, that's an extra roughly 50 to 52 bushels of corn just by the height of that stubble and better stubble out there. So you can see how important that crop residue is. Now, it's always good to put something in on Nebraska football if you're talking Nebraska, right? Now, that's, that's really, no, that's not the reason I put this in there. This takes me back to the early days when we started this system of ecofallow spraying the winter wheat stubble, plant corn, no intel in. Had a farmer call me that was doing this thing for the first time. He says, Bob, my brother-in-law and I were flying over our fields. And we couldn't figure out why one half of this field was greener than the other half. Because it made no sense. We planted, we planted the same hybrid all the way across it. We fertilized the same all the way across it. We used the same pesticides all the way across it, so it didn't make any sense. So they landed, went over to the field, and then they remembered, oh yeah, on half the field, and that's the lower one there, they took off the straw spreader and bailed that windrow straw. Well, he asked me, he said, are you interested in checking yields? And I said, you bet, we want to get out there and check, because we was just learning the value of the residue at that time. Made 97 bushel, which was really good back in the 70s for dry land in southwest Nebraska. The farmer couldn't believe it. And then we told him no. He gave up 20 bushels by bailing that windrow of straw. He couldn't believe it. He says, you know, if I need straw, I should keep mine and buy it from a neighbor down the road that doesn't know how valuable it is. Yeah. <laughs> now, you have to find a new neighbor each year to do that. Okay, now how much water does it take? Okay, well I got several lines here. We start wheat like at four inches of soil water. We started at 10. Well, there's a lot of things that make a difference on this. This is our plot in southwest Nebraska in Red Willow County in 2006, and it's about the way I like to have my wheat look in late October. We planted it late September. Just, and the field, the farmer followed it with herbicides, and then we still have some residue out there to protect the soil, which is very important. 
Now, right in that same area was this guy on the same date. Yeah, using a lot of water already, right? Okay, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, we averaged a little over 75 bushel on our 42 wheat varieties in there. And we had some pretty good yields, as you can see on the top. We didn't show them all there to save time. And the farmer harvested the field with a stripper header. That's where I like to maintain this crop residue. We don't want anything going through the combine because anything that goes through the combine gets chewed up and breaks down real rapidly. We want to keep that residue as long as we can. And this can show you, we didn't, I had a four-foot probe there, and we didn't have hardly any soil moisture at, after wheat harvest there on July the 4th. Maybe six inches was all we had. That's all I could get the probe down. Okay, we planted corn, a um, corn hybrid plot the next year. And uh, we, this is what the plants look like and plant to skip to. And we averaged on 25 hybrids, about 135 bushel. And we had some of the better hybrids close to 150. Again, not bad for dry land corn in Southwest Nebraska. Actually in 2009, when we really had a good year for dry land corn at Alma, Nebraska, which is about 60, 70 miles east of, of where this plot was, on 79 hybrids, we averaged 205 bushel. We actually beat a few irrigators that year on dry land corn. That residue is really the key, though. Okay, we'll come back to this guy. What do you think his wheat? Well, it kind of tells you the story about it and research we did. We planted some wheat on a research plot at North Plant, made two bushel plant on September 2nd. Planted on the 15th at May 27th. Planting on the 25th at May 42. Yeah. This farmer's wheat had every disease from planting it early and ended up grazing it out. So he got zero yield on that. Well, he got the value of grazing, I should say. Let's see what he's doing over there on September 3rd. Oh, they're cutting silage. Yeah. Now, this is the worst question I get, the one I don't really have good answers for, is what to do after they cut silage. Because in our system out there, two crops in three years, you're supposed to what? Fallow it the next year and plant wheat in the fall. Well, out in our area, if you get rain, you'll have water erosion. You'll have wind erosion, I can guarantee you that, and so forth. And so you've got to protect that soil. But the farmer realized he needed to do that, so he planted wheat that fall. After that, you know what his wheat made? 13 bushel. We go back to that other one, we had 75 bushel wheat, we had 135 bushel corn. It was actually a pretty good year in that area. The farmer planted corn back with all that good residue like we saw over there at Grant. He had another basically 135 bushel corn crop. Just all because of what? Crop residue. Really made it important. This was in Frontier County a few years ago. This is what half the field looked like, and this is what the other half looked like was good. Difference in there is on that half the field, they cut for silage. He farmer said he planted a long season hybrid on that one, and they sold it to a neighbor for silage. The other half, half he harvested for grain, and then he planted the same hybrid all the way across it the next year. Had no corn where it was harvested for silage. Had a good corn crop where they harvested for grain the year before. That residue is really important. 
And this is our big problem out there is we had a lot of people bail up these uh, corn stocks to feed their cattle because of the high priced hay and so forth. And of course, you can't blame them for your livestock, man. They're trying to keep your operation together. But I remember running into a farmer and he says, you know, he says, Bob, I feel pretty guilty. I says, now, why do you feel guilty? He says, well, I've been buying all my neighbor's bales, but I didn't bail any of mine residue out. <laughs> he says, it's just too valuable. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to 2012 here this summer. This is our water lab at Brule. In 2011, we had 70 bushel plus wheat. We harvested it with a stripper header. And this is what the field looked like. Not too bad for this year with those dry land conditions. He actually took one of these six-foot probes out in the skipper on August the 16th and got it down all the way. Yeah, unbelievable, wasn't it? And so we had a good corn crop finishing out there. And you can see what a lot of the corn crops look like in that area. And this was down in the McCook area. And this didn't have any residue in this field. Kind of interesting. And you can see it tried to make a little corn where there was a little bit of residue in that field. One thing we find also in this, the taller ones are the relative number of pheasants in the field. You almost got no pheasants with short stubble. With tall stubble, you've got good pheasant population. Okay, I like this advertisement, just one in the papers that said, field cultivators, the standard go-to tool for seedbed preparation, and uh, seedbed preparation work are among the hot year's hottest equipment upgrades. Farmers are looking for new models that can take out early weeds and clear away crop residues and so forth. Boy, that's a no-no in my book. You know, they're really aiming up at the wrong thing. There's a lot of reasons we can't no-till and so forth, but I think we can make them all work. And uh, one of the things is, I look at this as a true cost of tillage. You know, you get increased evaporation, we pointed out, soil, loss from till, uh, soil water loss from tillage, decreased irrigation efficiency, and then infiltration rates. And I think farmers that do this kind of thing, strip till or so forth, especially in our dry land, are wasting some real valuable moisture. And then we'll also find weeds that like to grow in that area where we till. And this is what I like to have the fields look like after planting. So you can't even see that I planted in there. One thing we want to mention, conclusion here, is soil compaction. It's really, really critical. University bought two sections of land with five pivots on it, and two of them had severe compaction. So I hired a local John Deere dealer to rip that force with a 500 horsepower tractor, pulling only eight shanks. It was compacted down to about 18 inches. You can see those shanks aren't very big. We estimated he should be able to pull that easily at six mile an hour. He could barely make four, yeah. The good news is, I made the contract by the acre for pulling that. <laughs> but the bad news is I agreed to pay the fuel bill. That's the bad news. And you can imagine how much diesel fuel that tractor was using. But it's kind of in summary here. If you look at these infiltration rates, you can see in conventional tillage, and this is with controlled traffic, 
you get a four-inch rain that moves through in an hour, you almost get none in the ground. In no-till, the traffic is a, roads are still a problem, but look at the soft roads. I tell my people, we got to have no-till, but we also have to have controlled traffic. Very, very important. And we also had some pesticide application problems. This is what we want the fields to look like. We found out working with sprayers, we first had a lot of uh, drift. We had a lot of efficacy problems, so we actually modified these sprayers, and we came up with really doing a, a good job then. You can see we really eliminated some drift and so forth by using this system to control. So I think with that, that concludes my presentation. I wasn't sure where that soil probe came from, so I figured, it, they figured he was gonna use it on somebody here. I think you can see why Bob's been a real treasure for the University of Nebraska. Thank you very much, Bob. Our next speaker is Jake LaRue, who is the Director of Research and Development for Irrigation at Valmont Industries uh, here in Nebraska. Jake has more than 30 years of experience in the irrigation industry, spanning a range of roles, and has worked around the world, and he's going to come to us and talk to us about technology and irrigation. Jake, floor is yours. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity to visit with you a little bit about irrigation uh, and talk about actually the mechanics of it. And let's see if I can, whoops, excuse me. Um, everybody has talked a little bit about too wet, too dry, so I'm just going to jump over that because I don't really see any more value to talking about it. But what I would like to talk about is what center pivots have done for us since the mid-1950s when they were introduced. We have done so much to adapt them to meet the ever-changing conditions, whether it's wet years or dry years or whatever the case may be, uh, the equipment has changed dramatically from the days of the old water drives. What I'd like to visit with you a little bit about is what changes have impacted water conservation, and then also talk about center pivots as a risk management tool. One of the things that we have tried to do with the center pivots is really integrate them into a total production system. Uh, we've heard a lot of discussions about that, talking about the stakeholders, and the one thing that is not on this slide is the grower and his particular input. But we really focus on trying to incorporate a number of different factors. The soils, the topography, uh, the cropping system, everything goes into helping us decide and make changes with the center pivots. And this is industry-wide. Uh, that everybody will work on this. So to us, it is critical to make sure that we're really providing the tool that a person needs. <clears throat> Let's talk first a little bit about water conservation. And this is really through the sprinkler packages. 
typically, we're using sprinklers provided by Nelson or Seniger. And we talk about types. We talk about the fixed pad, which has been around for many years, uh, has the ability to operate at low pressures. And then uh, later on, the introduction of the rotating pad sprinklers, such as the IWABs or the rotators. All of these have helped with water conservation because we're keeping the water down closer to the ground, potentially. We can control our droplet size and minimize evaporation compared to when we were using the impact sprinklers on top of the pipe. Now, in the grouping below where we talk about position, you can see the sprinkler on top of the pipe. It does certainly have applications depending on the situation. And the extreme is when we put the sprinkler completely on the ground in what would be called a LEPA system. And we've heard a lot today about evaporation losses and trying to minimize that. And those are all very good things. But we've also seen that the many cases we've positioned the sprinklers in the last few years down into the crop canopy. And if we're down in some pretty heavy corn, we don't get our patterns throwing very far. Depending on the sprinkler spacing, we have the potential to not get as good a distribution as we would like. We get some rainfall, it'll smooth it out, not be a big deal. However, this past year, as dry as it was, we had people that had been using the sprinkler package, say down in the canopy, about five feet off the ground, maybe six feet off the ground, uh, disappointed with their yields. So while they were minimizing evaporation, they were giving up yields, uh, and that didn't make some of them very happy. Uh, we heard from a lot of people at Husker Harvest about that. So we need to think through completely why we're doing what we're doing to make sure that it really makes good sense and where we're positioning it. If we position it clear on the ground with a LEPA package, then we have the issues with potential runoff uh, using that system. What was, has been said, um, Dr. Klein and others have talked some about tillage, and this is an example of where we want to integrate what is being done with tillage with our irrigation practices. And on the left-hand side, you don't see any water standing where they've gone through and used reservoir tillage. Now, if we're running a LEPA package or some kind of a package that doesn't give us a very wide distribution, which will tend to have a higher or a lower infiltration, uh, reservoir tillage may be very important to us. And so the industry has tried to adapt with the farming practices to make sure we can do this better. Because we don't want what's shown on the right where there was no reservoir tillage and we see a lot of water potentially moving off the field or certainly away from where it's important. Another area that the center pivot manufacturers have focused on is really helping to develop the control packages. Uh, we have moved from the days of totally manual to the point now that all manufacturers offered automated panels where you can program for things to happen in the future. Now you might say, well, how does that save us water? Well, if I'm doing a split crop, maybe corn on one half and soybeans on the other, 
It's very easy to program my machine to stop when it reaches the soybeans because maybe I don't want to water as much early season. I may set it up to reverse and go back across it. So there's a lot of different possibilities that you can do with the automated panels. And not only from a management standpoint, but also from a reporting standpoint, utilizing either internet-based or standalone systems. So as a grower, I can see what's happening. And particularly if it does rain and it's the middle of the night and a storm comes up, I'm usually too lazy to get out of bed to go turn my pivots off. But I can reach over to my phone and I can turn them off very easily. So it's those types of things, even though they sound small, you know, why pump the water if it's raining? So it helps us, it helps the farmer do a better job of managing and better decision making, coupled with the ability to tie in sensors. We may tie in uh, soil moisture sensors, could tie in flow meters, uh, rain gauges potentially, all of this coming back through our center pivot to really help us understand what's going on. So there's been a lot of increase in this and we continue to try to understand what's needed in the marketplace and what really brings value to the grower. Risk management. You ever think about risk management in a center pivot? I think there's some people in uh, Illinois and Iowa that I met at Farm Progress that uh, really are thinking about center pivots as a risk management tool. Now it sounds kind of dumb to say that, uh, you know, growers got to make a profit or got to make money at least to pay back their expenses because they've always had to do that. However, I think today it's gotten a little more extreme. Land prices, input costs, fuel costs, and they got a lot of money that goes into the ground. And with the center pivot, getting the water on at the right time, it can make a world of difference. And pretty well seen, and we've had a couple previous speakers mention that it's really water that probably is one of the biggest limiting factors. It's not probably, it is the biggest limiting factor in a lot of cases to their yield. So from a I got to have a basic yield, I got to get something back out of this, the center pivot can definitely play a significant role in risk management. Now that's interesting. There should be a number of slides in there yet. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea, well, I do probably know what happened. I had to send it in in pieces. Um, let me just, I'll talk about the next portion. I apologize, I don't have the slides for it. The other part that the industry has really moved towards is more precision farming and offering the ability to do this using variable rate irrigation. Uh, as you well know, throughout a lot of the farming industry, I mean, my land, have been doing variable rate fertilized applications, herbicide applications, and recently it's moved to ability to put down different seeding rates, all based on a prescription. Well, in the irrigation business, we've been slower to adopt that uh, because it's all of our focus has been on uniformity. 
you ask anybody in the NRCS what's supposed to happen, and they'll tell you, well, you gotta, when you sell that center pivot, you've got to have uniformity of 90 or 92 or whatever the case may be. But is that really the answer? If I'm applying an inch of water, applying it uniformly on a field that has sand soils in it and some clay loams, is that what I really need? Or am I better off really focusing on trying to put the right amount of water in the right place? And the center pivot industry is now to that point where we can offer packages that allow you to do that in a very economic manner. So utilizing prescriptions, and the next speaker will talk in more detail about that, but we have to map the field so we know its characteristics, generate a prescription, and then from that it's loaded into the center pivot, and you can go on and operating the center pivot allows you to vary the application depth around the field, which you know, pretty, pretty cool. And we can have management areas that'll vary anywhere from a couple acres down to an area that could be a 10 by 10 meter area. And that's, that's really starting to get precise. Probably more precise and realistically uh, that you may want to be on your particular farm or your particular situation. So this will allow you then, if you're in an area with relatively unlimited water, you can go ahead and apply to maximize your situation and your profitability on the field, whatever that may be. And if you're in an area with limited water, you can also set up your prescription. So, you know, why do I want to put the same amount of water on an area of the field that I've already cut back on my fertilizer, cut back on my seed? Why do that? Let's save the water and really focus on applying it to the areas with the most productivity. So the whole area of variable rate irrigation has really started to come on strong uh, and offers great opportunities to better manage the water and manage our risks associated with it. And uh, the last thing I'd like to mention is talk briefly about the future. We could talk about the weather and who knows. How many of you expected to get up to snow last Thursday morning? That was a rude awakening. But we never know, and we can talk about the climate change and everything else, but the reality is we've got to be able to adapt, we've got to be nimble and quick, and allow ourselves to adjust to whatever's necessary. Certainly the seed uh, folks, the herbicide and uh, chemical folks allow us uh, a lot of options, and the irrigation industry with center pivots is right behind that. The center pivot industry will continue to adapt and adopt what is necessary to really provide the best value package possible to the grower. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jake. And our last panelist for this session is Nick Emanuel. Uh, Nick is the president of Crop Metrics of Nebraska. He founded the company himself. Uh, it's a precision agriculture company based in North Bend, Nebraska, that provides advanced solutions with an emphasis on specializing in variable rate irrigation. Previously, he worked as an independent precision ag specialist and at John Deere AMS in research and development. 
Uh, please join me in welcoming Nick Emanuel. Thank you, Ronnie, and thank you for the opportunity to be here today. As he said, I'm going to talk today about precision ag and how that is integrated in today's uh, water management and irrigation management practices. So Jake started off with a little introduction on what Valley offers today. When we talk about, I guess, crop metrics, what we are is a precision ag solutions company really focused on the advanced solutions. And more specifically, we specialize in the precision irrigation management and variable rate irrigation. If we take a step back and look at precision ag in a more broad or general term, or what really is precision ag, I say that precision ag is often, in simplest terms, integrating GPS technology with your normal farming practices. The most common application of that today is auto guidance or auto track, which is the most heavily adopted precision ag technology today. But if we look at precision ag in more detailed terms, as Jake mentioned also, it really looks at site-specific applications, whether that is with fertilizer, plant population, and now with today's technology we can implement this with water. What is site-specific application? It is really identifying the differences in soil type or topography within, within each given field and then adjusting our applications, whether again that seed population, fertilizer, or water, to match each of those variables throughout the field. As they said, does it really make sense to put on one flat rate across an entire field knowing that we have different variables that impact our overall yield potential and productivity across that entire field. So when we look at variable rate irrigation specifically, and what I'll dive into a little bit more, we're really looking at two different aspects. And this goes back to actually uh, looking at one of the questions that was asked earlier on the first three presenters. But one is to look at increasing water use efficiency. At the same time, we're going to improve water use efficiency. We're also looking at pushing yields and maximizing profitability through that entire field. And again, the way we're going to try to achieve this is through site-specific applications of center pivots. So the first step in this, in precision ag or integrating variable rate irrigation, is really to understand the variability in each soil or in each field. When we look at variability, I say that there's, there's two different aspects of variability that we first need to measure and understand before we can try to integrate the variable rate irrigation technology. One is the extent of variability. How much does that soil type vary from one acre to the next? Or how much does that topography vary from one acre to the next? The other aspect is spatial variability. What is the spatial pattern of that variability? Both of these features and aspects, the extent of variability and the spatial pattern of the variability, is going to affect how we integrate some of these newer technologies in variable rate irrigation. So as we look at this map here that we have displayed, you can see that this is showing a soil type variability maps. These are measured from electrical conductivity mapping. So when we go out and start, before we even recommend any type of variable rate irrigation prescription or any other type of recommendation with precision water, we first try to go out and map the growers' fields and understand 
what that variability is like. Again, one, implementing soil type variability, which we measure with electrical conductivity. We use this more specifically because it directly correlates to the overall water holding capacity. And then also, we're also collecting RTK elevation data at the same time to map the topography variability at the same time, which as most of you know, between water holding capacity within the soil type and topography variability, those are really two of our, what we say, fixed factors that affect the overall water holding capacity throughout that field. So when we do this, when we first collect uh, this type of information, the first thing we're going to do is, uh, again, understand how much variability there is within the field. The more variability we have, the more opportunity we're going to have to take advantage of a technology like variable rate irrigation. You can see in this slide, what we're measuring here is on the, the first, the left-hand side, you're looking at the overall field variability which this is a pretty common field average variability um, across the Midwest here, where we might start around that 10 to 15% variability. That's really looking at from our lightest soil in the field to our heaviest soil in the field, how much variability from one end to the next. Well, then we can look at the, the two variable rate irrigation technologies that are available today. The most common and the easiest to integrate on most center pivots today on a very low cost solution is what we call variable, variable rate speed control. And that is simply adjusting the speed of the pivot anywhere from one to up to six degrees around that pivot to adjust for that variability in each pie slice. When we look at that left hand slide, now instead of applying one uniform rate around that field, we can now determine what the average soil type is within each one of those given pie slices and adjust our irrigation application to maximize our efficiency for that variability in soil type and topography around that circle. The next advancement that uh, Valley first came out with two years ago and now some of the other manufacturers are now releasing is what they call VRI zone control. And in the example on the right hand side, Really what this is, is controlling individual nozzles or groups or banks of nozzles. We now have the capability to upgrade our hardware to actually adjust our application rates between individual groups of nozzles along that center pivot. So now not only by adjusting the speed as we go around the circle, we can also with a pulsating action adjust how much our, adjust our application along those, that entire center pivot span. You can see, not only with identifying the variability on this individual field, we can also identify how much opportunity we have from not only speed control, but then the upgrade to zone control. And we can often help growers with a cost-benefit analysis on which one is going to help them more. Once we collect this uh, data and understand how much variability there is within that topogra topography and soil type, the next step is relating that to yield data. And this is another precision ag tool that we can implement or integrate with the overall management practice of this variable rate irrigation. And what we're doing here is we're taking advantage of the geo-reference yield data being collected in combines or harvest equipment today. What we do is we overlay the yield data information with that soil type or topography yield information, and we try to relate what the productivity potential or the yield potential is in each one of those different given variables. 
how much does that yield vary, vary from the lightest soil type to the heavy soil type, or from our lowest topography position to our highest topography position? With that, we can then make more informed decisions on how we customize our variable rate irrigation prescriptions, where we're going to cut back water and we're gonna, where we're going to increase water. And we can then not only understand the yield productivity at the current stage, but we can also measure improvements after we start implementing variable rate irrigation to determine how much it really affected our overall management practice. So here's an example of start to finish where we start with the EM or the EC data layer and we move to the optimal given slices and then to a full variable rate irrigation prescription. We're here, we're basically increasing the speed of our pivot over the heavier soil types, which are indicated in the blue, and slowing down the pivot in those lighter soil types to put on more water. Now, any of these prescriptions can be customized depending on your region or specific needs of the field. For example, in western Nebraska and parts of uh, western Kansas where they're allocated or limited on water, they might flip-flop this prescription where they actually put on less water on the lighter soil types and more water on the heavier soil types because of their limitations they want to maximize the higher yield producing areas, which are usually going to be those heavier soil types. So the prescriptions can easily be customized uh, for each individual field situation. And here you can see more of an in-depth look at combining not only soil type, but with a 3D uh, view of the topography and how we adjust that speed application to fit those different variables within the field. So as I mentioned, depending on the individual field circumstances, we can really customize a variety of irrigation prescriptions or recipes that fit, feed into the irrigation controllers today to account for any one of those variables that can be measured within a field. Again, going back to one of those earlier questions about efficiency, when we come back at the end of the year after uh, applying one of these variable rate irrigation prescriptions, it's very important to start to measure what the improvements were and to show the grower what these improvements were. And we are, have a lot of success so far on really both the two main aspects. One, in overall irrigation efficiency, and then two, in the yield improvement. Part of that, measuring the, the overall efficiency and the yield improvement, we designed a trial to help try to measure how much improvement we're really seeing. And not only overall measure the improvement, but also understand if we can improve our prescription more the following season. And here is what we call a 30-30 trial, which we're starting to implement this more and more with different groups such as the Nebraska Water Balance Alliance and different seed companies. But what we do here is we alternate the variable rate irrigation prescription from the grower's normal legacy flat rate to the variable rate irrigation rate, and we alternate that around the pivot every 30 degrees, from the flat rate to the variable rate irrigation rate. From that, at the end of the year, we can come back and measure how much improvement and do a side-by-side -side comparison with the yield data to show how much improvement there was with the variable rate irrigation prescription. I use this slide as an example because this was actually um, some trials that we ran in conjunction with Monsanto the last couple of years. But we also found, as some of the previous speakers have identified, there's actually also a hybrid interaction that plays in part of this. 
So now we're not only understanding how that water or what the optimal water rate is by soil type, but the different hybrids are reacting differently to the different rates or application amounts of water. So we ran a hybrid trial on top of this 30-30 trial to start to understand what those hybrid differences were at the same time we were measuring these variable rate irrigation uh, efficiencies. And you can see in this example, this is looking at each of the individual hybrid response across that field and their different improvements from variable rate irrigation as well as the overall field improvement for variable rate irrigation as a whole, which you can see was a little over 13 bushels uh, per acre. But what is interesting here is looking at those individual hybrid differences where you can see, for example, the hybrid on the left had still had a positive improvement, but it was much less than some of those hybrids on the right, which had a much more drastic or a higher degree of improvement with the variable rate irrigation technologies. So it's important to start to understand kind of the complete systems approach that there's more variables than just the spatial variability within a field that we also have to account for interactions such as hybrid when we start to measure this. I wanted to also show one other uh, example of improvement throughout a field. We're here, when we, when we start to apply variable rate irrigation prescriptions, again, whether it's seeding, and or fertilizer or uh, irrigation, we most normally focus on the trouble spots throughout the field, whether that's gonna be an extremely sandy part of the field or possibly a very heavier soil type that often gets overwatered and flooded out. It is usually those tougher par parts of the field that we are gonna make our most drastic changes, whether that's again cutting back water or applying more water. In this case, this grower's field we're looking at, we looked at his yield data for the previous two seasons in 2010 and 2011. And there was over, I think, an average of 47 bushel difference in our toughest zone, our zone one, which happened to be a, a sandy ridge within the field. You'll see that zone one of that 130 acre circle only constituted 12 acres of the total, total circle. So it's not a huge area in the field, but it was our toughest area in the field. In 2012, we added variable rate irrigation and in conjunction, integrated variable rate seeding to this zone one. In 2012, you can see the yield response after implementing both of those technologies where we, we actually reduced our population on that tougher part and increased our water application you can see now it came much closer to evening out those yields across the field. There was still a slight decline, but overall there was a 36 bushel improvement over the previous two years. So just for that one, that small zone in the area, which was only 12 acres, he actually paid for his first year investment on both the controllers and the entire precision ag application overall. Looking at that and summing up, when we look at precision water management and integrating some of these technologies, it's really looking at the complete systems approach and integrating these technologies with your other management practices. As I identified, whether that's hybrid changes and or the importance of different tillage practices across the field. But with all precision ag technologies and precision and variable rate irrigation in general, we really have three ultimate goals that we strive for.
One, is it attainable? Are our goals attainable? Are they repeatable the next season and years after that? And most importantly, is it sustainable? So with that, I'll give the podium back to Ronnie and open it to questions. If we could get Bob and Jake and to join Nick for a couple of questions, if we have some from the audience. I am conscious of time for those of you that are wanting to go on the tour, but we do have time for, for a couple of questions if there are some from the floor. Yes, over here. One question regarding the variable rate irrigation. Uh, you showed the yield gains by applying variable rate across the field. Uh, did you gain any water application efficiency, so it was pretty much redistributing that same volume of water across the field? Thank you. No. It, yes, the irrigation application efficiencies were also measured. Uh, they weren't included in that slide, but besides the yield improvement analysis that we do, we're also looking at two other um, analysis levels. One is the actual application and the overall irrigation efficiency. And the new one that's uh, becoming more and more important is actually the, the energy analysis, whether that's fuel cost or uh, utility and uh, electrical cost. We're also taking those into analysis as well also. Yes, over here. My question for the panelists is the following. To what extent soil moisture may affect the results that you have shown? Or what would be the advantage of measuring soil moisture for your approaches? Yeah, well, one of the things we do is out in western Nebraska where it's dry, we evaluate how much soil water we have at planting time along with the amount of crop residue cover. And then we'll adjust our corn seeding rates and grain sorghum and so forth according to those moisture levels, and we actually have a publication on that, uh, plant populations for dry land and rain-fed corn. And so you can take a look at that by going to the um, crop watch and, and clicking or asking for that. And so we adjust both of those things. For the variable rate irrigation technology, um, that, that's an important aspect as well also that I didn't hit on too much because of the time available, but we, Majority of growers using the, the variable rate irrigation technology are also integrating or implementing soil moisture monitoring with soil probes. And then we can precisely place that soil probe based on um, optimal location indi indicated from the EC and topography data. Once we know the soil moisture from that optimal location uh, from the soil moisture probes, we can get a very accurate estimate of the area, other areas of the field from our um, EC variability maps. Yes. I have a question on the variable irrigation rate. Can you give us an estimate of what kind of investment is needed to get the uh, data required to optimize that? Yep, good question. So when we start with uh, variable rate irrigation, um, there's primarily three, um, three pieces that it takes. One is your controller. Most of, the, most of the pivots today are now capable, if not coming with a new pivot, they're capable of variable rate speed control with a software upgrade to the panel and or most of all the remote telemetry providers for the center pivots now 
integrate variable rate irrigation. So besides the controller, the next step is the mapping. The mapping generally runs anywhere from the $8 to $10 an acre range in this Midwestern area. And then with software and consulting fees to generate the prescriptions, you're roughly looking at uh, $1,500 per pivot your first year and then a nominal fee each year after that. I think you can, uh, if you loop back to the very beginning of this session this afternoon, and uh, Nick, I think you summed it up very well on your last slide. The integration in a systems fashion of all of the information and understanding that we continue to develop and continue to advance is the key to resiliency. And that's the real take-home message for me here today is how that we continue to seek that information to better develop technologies to understand the land resource and the water resources that we, we have in order to meet the challenges ahead. Please join me in congratulating these three for a great second part of the panel.